Welcome to the first episode of the Pints of Popcorn podcast. Uh, really excited to have you along for the ride. Just a quick insert from me at the start here to just ask you guys to uh, follow our social medias uh, at be Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. All of them are Pints Popcorn without the end, just Pints Popcorn. And uh, yeah, if you're not already subscribed to the pod, uh, subscribe, rate, review, all that fun stuff really helps us out. Without further ado, let's get into it. All right, uh, Shay, how about um, we do a podcast on uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, I just figured we would. I got a six-pack of White Claw back here. Might order a pizza. All right. Let's go. Let's go. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Fry, you Nazi bastards! (laughs) Seems this world has got you down. You're feeling bad about racial friends. Are you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. You still direct, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. Line. Cut! Embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Has been on August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Charlie's gonna dig you. And that gospel. Dalton. Don't you forget it. Alrighty, welcome to the first episode of the Pints and Popcorn podcast. Already, the pop. See, I I was trying to practice saying this earlier. I knew I'd fuck it up because it's Pints and Popcorn podcast, and it's like great, yeah, the triple P, which um. Don't take that the wrong way, but uh, uh, it's 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 a mouthful, and I'm I'm not the most articulate person. I do my best though. Um, podcasting is good for practicing that. Uh, but yeah, it's um, the first podcast is myself, uh, David, and we've got Shay on the line. Um, a few listeners might know us from another podcast we do. We do one on sports, but they're cancelled forever now, apparently. So we decided we'd run onto something we've talked about for a long time. We're both, um, I think, something beyond sports that me and Shay really connected over when we first became friends fucking six, seven years ago now. It's been a while. 
uh, was we've often been uh, heavy heavy movie chatters. We uh, whether it be at the bar or just through text, um, we see a movie and we talk about it at length. Um, and it's and you know not just as oh we liked it, but we actually really love getting into the nitty gritty of movies and and kind of the, the what happened in them and what they mean and what they mean to us as well. Because you know movies uh, as an art form are something that you know can resonate with a person. Uh, just like a, a great piece of art or um, you know music or whatever else, um, uh, we really feel that inside of us. So uh, we figured we'd start with one of the best art pieces in recent years and uh, one that kind of uh, is a you know fairy tale about the industry cent- an industry center at the center of a lot of our movie watching, which is Hollywood and the first podcast being about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I welcome Shay to the pod. How are you? I'm good. Uh... Pretty excited to to finally kick this off. Um, prefacing this whole podcast as a whole, not just this one about Once Upon a Time, which we'll get into why we picked mm-hmm. that. Obviously, you touched on it a little bit, but just prefacing the podcast, like we're not art house snub snobs by any means either. <laughs> when we talk about when David says we were talking about movie, we were talking about you know, yeah, some of them were. Some of the movies we talked about were probably a little out there and off the beaten path, but we talked about like mainly like popular movies and, you know, um, we're not like when I say we're not snobs, I mean, my favorite film of all time is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. So like, and I don't think David and I have ever really like gotten deep on Wes Anderson, but this podcast will hopefully allow oh it'll happen that <laughs> as an avenue <laughs> and many other directors i was starting, starting to movie, with a great one tonight a, yeah i was starting a movie, po- movie podcast with you i knew uh, i already knew that wes anderson was going to come up at some point so <laughs> yeah um, yeah but yeah like, like you said we're we're lovers of all movies like um there is some that'll be off the beaten path a little bit but then there'll be some that go right into the mainstream um i know you and i talked about bad boys too the other day and that'll happen at some point so it'll be <laughs> It'll be just movies that we love, and the, and we love many movies for many reasons. Some of them will be a lot more mainstream. We'll just talk about what you know the the reasons that you know an, an action movie that just that is straight at you know straight at your external senses rather than than deeper is still important to us uh, as a movie watching public because movies do a lot of things for different piece, uh, parts of us. And you know, as we get into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think uh, it really gets to your heart as a movie lover. And um, I guess that we can start with that is why did like i i've watched it five or six times now and uh, like it it really resonates and the first watch um as with a lot of movies is just trying to get a handle on it and you're trying to work out what's going to happen this is a movie that really rewards you on the rewatch because once you know what's going to happen obviously this podcast we will talk about everything that happens in the movie so if you haven't seen it um stop stop and watch this is your last chance Um, you know, it's the Looney Tunes cartoons with the big sign at the edge of the cliff. This is your last chance as we're about to talk about <laughs> everything. Uh, but you, once you know what's going on uh, in the movie, obviously, there's a lot of tension, I think, when you first watch it because you don't know what this movie's going to be about. Because obviously, when we first heard about it, it was the Quentin Tarantino Manson murders movie is basically how everyone, the, the media talked about how this movie was coming out. And um, that immediately made you think it was just going to be you know, Inglorious Bastards, but with the with the Manson Manson family, and and luckily it kind of ended up that way in the sense that we get some, it kind of was we, that get, way. we get some revenge, but it's uh you know Manson's only in it for like a minute in the end, uh, if that probably even less. Yeah, it's probably like thirty seconds of actual screen on on screen time, and you know the the, the murders are you know um it really is a fairy tale about what that should have been, which is just a random act of violence um that 
didn't didn't have any consequences for anyone important. Truly, and you know, I know you said that it was a Tarantino movie about, or the media was saying it was a Tarantino movie about the Manson murders. But when I first heard about it, and for a long time until people started like things started to get leaked out, like kind of who was playing what and stuff like that. I thought it was one, and I knew it was called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I just thought it was about the golden age, like that hippie age, golden age of film where it kind of, everything was switching in LA and Hollywood. And I just thought it was going to be about that. So once I heard about the, and it really is more about that Mm -hmm. than the Manson thing. The Manson thing is the, the, the plot B of it, but it just happens to be the big plot of act three, I guess. But it is more about Hollywood in general, I think, rather than, and I mean, the Mansons were out there when that was happening, so it all makes sense that it would overlap, I guess. And he did it in a great way. Obviously, we'll get into why, but uh, at, at the front, yeah, he just killed it. He killed it. I mean, I think that's why we picked this <laughs> yeah. as the first one, because it'd be easy to do like Pulp Fiction or whatever, because he obviously killed that as well. But, I mean, this is a great movie about movies. Yeah. And that's what it, and that's um, when we're talking about, I mean, I'm sure we're going to do plenty of other Tarantino movies in the lifetime of this podcast, um, which hopefully will be a long time, but there's plenty of, there's plenty of, probably all of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this one is the one that um, at the end of it, I really thought this is the one that Tarantino's truly put his heart and soul into as far as, his life um, growing up in in Los Angeles and the ho- around the Hollywood scenes, um, he even talks about in some some uh, you know off interviews about the movie, like the scenes where they they're in the little uh, the was it the Volkswagen uh, Carmen Gear or whatever um, with a view where it's looking up, um, it's driving along. The camera's kind of looking at uh, Sharon, I think, and looking up towards the buildings. And he said, "That's my exact view, driving down these in." in in that car, like right. driving down as a kid, looking up at these buildings in LA and just having this, this uh, neon soaked and sun drenched view of LA and Hollywood and, and having this fairy tale idea about it. And he, and you know, to his credit, he's really kept that up through obviously the industry's changed so much during his career and he's kept up with his, his, um, you know, opinions about how Hollywood should be and, 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 and really, you know, protecting the art form of filmmaking. Um, uh, there's a lot of innovations in filmmaking over the last 30, 40 years that have certainly made filmmaking better for other people that um, maybe don't have the resources that Tarantino does now, but he really protects the art form of making films and and also, you know, just really, just the film itself is so, the artistic views of LA and the way that they were able to recreate this time. Um, and that's what I think resonates with me is it's like I said at the start, uh, you know, some films are truly art and like watching the scenes where Cliff is just driving through LA is just, you know, any other director tries to do that. Um, that's just, doesn't, it just doesn't work. You know, you're just sitting there like, why am I watching this guy drive? But the way he paces the film and the way he, you know, the whole film is just to start to finish just the, the life, a, a couple of days in the life of these, these characters really. And we'll get into the characters in a bit, but um, he sets up the pacing very quickly as just, uh, we're just living in, the, in these guys' lives. And there are these points that happen while we're in these few days of their lives. And just from that point on, you're just watching art on screen, and it, and it's beautiful. I I can't get enough of watching those scenes where it's just driving through the city. Obviously, with um, a great soundtrack, which Tarantino just does so well. But yeah, that was one of my main takeaways, just from a, a, a visual point of view from the film. 
Oh, it's beautiful. Definitely. And in a non-traditional Tarantino way, because I never think of his movies as beautiful per se. Like I wouldn't say Inglorious Bastards is beautiful. I mean, it's really well shot and especially the stuff that he does with the Nazi insignia, which is like so gross to look at, but he makes it look pretty and he makes it kind of like Jojo Rabbit, um, how they do at the the front end of the film. They make Mm -hmm. it look so like easy to understand why these people were uh, hypnotized by it. But this was the most personal Tarantino, I think, by far. Obviously, I mean, he makes movies about samurais and, <laughs> and you know, Django and Pulp Fiction. I mean, that's an L.A. movie for sure as well. And Reservoir Dogs is too. Actually, the same car was used in mm. in uh, both movies. It's Michael Madsen's car. But um, the yellow Cadillac that yeah. he's driving around. Um, but... It was definitely the most personal one, and I think you can really tell that in the ads that are read over the stereo. Um, obviously, the music's great, and it's of the time, and everybody can place that time with the music, but I think it's so like personal to Tarantino that he used these these certain ads from back then, because I, I remember that's one thing that stood out to me on the rewatch was hearing those ads and being like, man, like I bet my parents, and maybe they were just LA ads, but like... I watched that film with my parents the first time and like, I was like, I bet this is so cool to them. Like they're hearing this stuff and even the stuff on TV that Cliff is watching in his, um, in his trailer, like so specific to the time, like the three in the attic thing. Like mm-hmm. it's, I know that was a show, but like that just puts you so in the time. And I know that that's like what Tarantino was watching as a kid. So it's, it just, it really is personal and it's cool to see. And it's also just happy it's like a happy Tarantino, which you don't always get like, <laughs> or you hardly ever get, honestly. So it was, I think it is the most personal and it shows that he definitely has, you know, another side to him and there's plenty of violence in it for all. Like if that's why you like Tarantino, there's plenty of violence in it, but mm. I just think it was like a love letter to his childhood almost. Yeah. And that's, um, I think that's probably what, um, you know, I was talking about the tension that was in the first watch because you're just you're just expecting the explosion of violence that's going to see some of your beloved characters die. And I think I've there's a lot of a lot of uh, Quentin Tarantino characters I've loved through the years, um, but I think Rick Rick and Cliff are the are the best. <laughs> I, I honestly got to say, like, and you know, I know we'll start getting into character stuff in a bit, but you know, I was I was always expecting that. But the way this movie was going, obviously knowing that it was going to lead to these these infamous murders that actually happened. Um, you're always either expecting that you're going to still see Sharon die, um, which thankfully didn't happen in the film. Tragically it did happen in real life, but it was, you know, just the way the film went, you were just like hoping something different was going to happen. But then my next thought was like, well, you know, obviously one of these guys is going to die. Cause it's just, it's Tarantino. Someone's someone that you like is going to die somehow. Like in glorious bastards, you see a bunch of beloved characters just brutally <laughs> killed. And, um, but it didn't end up that way, and that I think that's when you say Happy Tarantino, you just come out of that movie just going, God, like there's nothing, you know, these characters, despite their flaws, you love them, um, and all we all we got to see was the these people that uh, should have been killed brutally, <laughs> uh, killed brutally, and it was and it was really rewarding and cathartic, and and you know the, that last scene, obviously of um, him walking in to meet Sharon and uh, Rick Dalton walking in to meet Sharon, it's just like the happy Tarantino feels were really there, which you've, I d- can't remember e- ever quite feeling that in a movie because even, even Kill Bill at the end, there's some kind of weird, tragic, the way it happens is just, uh, I don't know, 
this one the, the, the journey one. until they like is yeah. just so like it doesn't make you feel happy even in the end so yeah because <laughs> she's like, because it starts with her being you know you know almost yeah. killed at her wedding and obviously her partner was killed then and a few other innocent people were killed so uh yeah you know we we didn't have to deal with that and in, in once upon a time in hollywood it was truly was a fairy tale about a time in hollywood that uh was a very much a changing time in hollywood but um, he he told it. He told the story he wished had happened, and it was truly a fairy tale and a love letter to an industry that still means so much to him, and one that he's very much um, an integral part of its history now. And he's and he's kind of rewarding what he was he grew up with with a with a with a letter back to it. Basically, is what how I took it, and um, I'm very thankful that he does have more of a heart than a lot of people may have thought. I I've always respected him as a as a creator and a filmmaker and someone who's got a mind like no other there will never be another another creator like him just because of the time he grew up in as you said you know growing up with these ads and and the music and at the time and and the way the imagery as well yeah Yeah. and the cars and the color like it's so vibrant like you're talking about like like from a i don't know it's like he had he really had to pay a lot of money (laughs) to get a lot of those businesses to put those ply and i'm not i promise i'm not going to just regurgitate the like did you know page on imdb but <laughs> he had to pay a lot of those businesses to like put up the old stuff mm. that that old neon which is like that was a question i was going to have for you later in the pod is in maybe even off air but like why did we move away from neon but we'll get to that later <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure it's super expensive and like super hard to deal with but um <laughs> Like, a lot of these businesses didn't want it. They're like, you know, they have their own brand and stuff like that. But then after they were done filming it, a lot of the businesses kept it up. Yeah. They were like, yeah, like, this looks way better. And it's like, and it, like, it does suck you into that time. And it just, especially on, like, the second time of watching it, the rewatch, where the tension is eased because mm-hmm. you know what's going to happen. Like, you mentioned that. And that is such a huge thing upon the rewatch is, like, it's such a better watch on the rewatch because that i mean i wouldn't take back my first watch when that tension's there because Mm -hmm. like spawn ranch scene is completely different i found that whole scene funnier now way funnier it's hilarious yeah when watching it's also a rewatch we'll get into that because you're just like what's gonna happen (laughs) here but yeah we'll get to it but um and just the end you you know like when right when they go into the wrong house you're like okay (laughs) (laughs) something's afoot but you think you know, you obviously think Cliff, who's smoke. I can't even imagine what it's like to smoke acid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, what he's gonna do? And he's laughing at these people. <laughs> like, you just assume the worst. But uh, yeah, just I mean, my big takeaway from it, like, even in Django and um, Inglorious Bastards, which you still walk away from the theater with a smile on your face, and even Pulp Fiction to a lesser extent, even mm-hmm. though you know, like, how fucked up everybody gets um like you walk away you walked away with a smile on your face after inglorious and um django but like you still had to like go through two acts of brutality in both especially django where it's just like yeah he wins in the end but god that was a you know tough to watch Mm -hmm. um at times whereas uh this you know once upon just definitely is kind of like an easy glide through a meadow on a spring afternoon you know you don't have to deal with too much like (laughs) horrific shit i guess yeah i mean yeah the horrific shit really is like what's going on 
internally for the characters rather than externally. You know, you've got um, and I, I guess we can and who can't relate to that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's much more relatable than like you know even Inglorious Bastards. As as we sit in quarantine, yeah, it's uh, yeah, internal battles are all we have right now. And why'd uh, you have to drink eight fucking white claws? <laughs> Couldn't stop it four. <laughs> fucking alcoholic. <laughs> I remember watching the scene in his trailer, and we'll get to that because that's probably my favorite scene in it. Um, like non consequential scene, I guess, but um. Like, watching that scene with my parents, the first time I did, like, I had just moved to Wallingford, and I watched that scene in a theater, like, they're both, like, who knows if our extremely depressed son is going to make it out here, and I'm just sitting there thinking the same thing, probably, and uh, (laughs) he's just, he's looking in the mirror, when he looks in the mirror, and goes, and I promise this podcast won't be just us, like, laughing at our favorite lines but a lot of it will be but <laughs> we love movies that's part of it <laughs> looking in the mirror it's like if you don't shape up i'm going to blow your goddamn brains out tonight like and i'm just dying laughing watching that and my parents are probably just looking at me horrified <laughs> like oh good god <laughs> but that it was so funny it's like oh man him in the mirror <laughs> and his face in the mirror is straight on at the camera. Yeah. Oh my! It's so it's like a perfect shot. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah, I guess we can get moving in. forward. That is no. That is what <laughs> I was getting to. Was the the very, you know, one of the one of the maybe you could say there's not too many people that are truly critical of this movie um, because it was it was quite beloved. But there, it was I found him on Reddit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you need to find something, look go to Reddit. Um, it one of the criticisms from people that maybe didn't. Uh, didn't give it a b- bit more of a chance uh, was that it didn't have much of a plot, which like on the surface, you can kind of say it is just, as I said before, it's kind of we're living through the days of these, uh, particularly the three main, uh, Cliff, Rick, and and uh, Sharon. We're just living through their days. But at the very early in the movie, it kind of like Rick going to the meeting with uh, uh, Schwarz, uh, Al Pacino, you know, <laughs> who's uh, great in that little role. Uh, was it, that a meeting, or did they just randomly run into each other? No, it was a meeting because uh, he walks in and goes, "I'm very, I'm here to here to meet a very handsome cowboy." Like, so, oh. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, they they run into each other there, and he's um he he kind of like he explains to Rick uh, what he might need to do to keep his career going, and it makes Rick realize right in this first part of the movie. It starts his descent into thinking, "Oh fuck, I'm what, you know, I'm a has been old buddy," as he says uh, as he's walking out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cry in front of the Mex. <laughs> Don't cry in front of the Mexicans. Um, <laughs> One of the biggest takeaway lines from it. Yeah. Um, but that starts off the character arc of him right right away, and that's and you know you can say what you want about plot being what it is, but a lot of uh, you know character is the main essence of plot in movies. You know, if you don't care about the characters. The movie's gonna not not resonate quite as much, even if you know, you know, even Die Hard you care about because it's, it's set up. <laughs> you care about the guys, even if it's not quite as deep. But um, so it sets up his character arc very quickly there with um him realizing he's at a crossroads. He gets offered that offered that chance to go to Rome and make spaghetti westerns in that scene. So that sets up the rest of his arc right there, and then we get through to the 
we get through to the the trailer scene um, where he's and he's had his eight goddamn whiskey sours the night before and he's acting like a baboon out there and and he and that's that's the next part of it is that he sits there and says we're either going to do this properly or I'm going to fucking kill you to himself and I. And I guess that's all I asked that to. It's not funny, but it's so funny. <laughs> well, hey, and uh, apparently that scene was like Leo just improvising, which is just... Completely improv. Yeah. And that's like... Man, I know Joaquin was good in The Joker, but... Uh, man, Rick Dalton deserves an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, was... I, think he was, I think he was way better than the, in this than The Revenant. Yeah, yeah, and I so love like, I love the Revenant, but that was a different that was a different acting performance, and yeah, that was one of those we need to give you an Oscar finally Oscars, I think. So I don't know if I love the Revenant. I like like I like it was great the first time I saw it, but like I don't know if I ever want to go back and see it. I've seen, I, I think I've seen it twice, and like it was great acting, obviously beautifully shot, but. Just for me as a movie fan, like I don't know, it. I like Birdman a lot more from that director. Yeah. Um, that. Now that you've said that, I'm going to be like, at some point in the next few years, I'm going to be like, hey Shay, we're doing the Revenant this week, and you're going to be like, fuck. I'll be like, dope. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> uh, I just like. I don't know. We'll talk about it off air. Because <laughs> I don't want this to turn into the Revenant pod yeah <laughs> well, we can go back to Le- yeah leo's acting in this movie was uh, you know one of the one of the great performances um that you you'll ever see just from like he was just he was at peak peak of his abilities and that scene really summed it up and like as far as like going back to his character arc that was and then he goes out and obviously kills it um on the set and and uh to round back to you know at the start of his going into the of the at the start of his day you know brad pitt says hey well, Cliff Booth, we'll go with character names, try to. And, uh, you know, he says, hey, don't remember, you're Rick fucking Dalton. And then at the end of that whole acting scene where he's finally killed the scene and, the, you know, they're all extremely happy with him, you know, he sits there and says to himself, I'm Rick fucking Dalton. And, like, you know, this movie has all these little plot points that, you know, we're, we're, on, his, we're on his arc and then, you know, the rest of the movie goes with him finally going to Rome, maybe finding some peace and then... And then when he finds peace, then he gets invited into Sharon's house. So you know there is a whole, right. there's a whole character arc there that um, that if you if you watch and obviously it's taken me a few rewatches to really really get into it and un, like but I I saw it that the, the first time I saw it I was like yeah I've, we've just witnessed a guy at the crossroads of his career and then find peace and that's what I came out with the first time. And then since then I've found found myself more watching those beats where he's you know has the meeting then has a disastrous first half of his day and then rebuilds to have a great second half of his day. So. You know, I know, I know. You said off air that you weren't, uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, you weren't sure about the plot things. But I don't, hearing that, I'm wondering how how you see it in that sense that we're maybe we just it is just a character based plot, which is quite obvious, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I do have a question for you at the end of this, but um, I, yeah, I, I know there's a complaints about there being a lack of plot, but like, who says we always need a plot? And you know, there. My question to you, after you said all of that, because like we kind of are on two opposite sides of you saying there is a plot and me saying there isn't, but like we're more in the middle on that than it's far more apart. The nuances, but, of, nuances of what we count as like what we think of as plot. So yeah. So who is the who's the movie officially about to you? I. 
I think it's bad. Well, I mean, if you're asking me for one single person, like character rather than because I think it's about Rick Cliff and Sharon. Uh, but then, right. but then I could say that the only one that has a true character arc is Rick. Um, you know, Cliff is kind of w- Cliff. I think is already you know he's already kind of like he he, he asks at the start. He says, "Hey, can you ask about that stuntman role? If I know I have a job this week with that." He's obviously getting paid by Rick at the time. Um, but, and, you know, Rick says, oh, unfortunately, you know, this, this stuff that's happening. Right, right. So, Rick, you know, Cliff's, a lot of Cliff's character building has happened before the movie. Um, and I guess we can roll into that next. But, um, you know, I think. But do, don't uh, you feel that he has an arc as well? Because through Rick going up to Sharon's house at the end of it and him being taken away, do we think that Rick is now going to end up in a Polanski film? And that Cliff, through Rick and his connection to Sharon and Polanski, gets, you know, is back with a role at least. Well, so, yeah, he, yeah he, so he's, yeah, he's going to have, I think, yeah, like, so Cliff will obviously end up being Rick's stunt double again because Rick's going to get movie roles. And so, yeah, that, but as far as him actually having an arc where he changes fundamentally as a person, I don't think so because he's just, he's just started the movie as cool, calm, collected Cliff, the stuntman. And at the end of the movie, he saved him. He's riding. He's he's in the bloody ambulance because he's got to go to hospital. He's still just like, no, oh, you go take care of that wife of yours, or you know, go go hang with Brandy or whatever. He's just like, he's still it's just... also tripping. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. But like, in that sense, he was like, you know, he's still calm and collected, um, which he was. I think he was going to be whether he's on an acid cigarette or not in that situation because he just he was at the Spahn Ranch. Um, so I think, yeah, Rick's the one that actually has a character arc where he has to realize who he is and accept that being an older actor is actually okay if you accept that and then go with the opportunities that presents you rather than trying to hold on to your old your old life. Whereas Cliff kind of, you know, Cliff is almost out of a job as a stuntman at this point because he's just not getting any work because because of his obvious rep, obvious reputation. But he's okay. He's just like, all right, I'm just going to drive Cliff, or, uh, drive Rick around and, um, you know, do little jobs for him. And life ain't so bad. Like, he's just, you know, he's just accepting of, you know, he, he's kind of accepting the good parts of the life that's given to him and and then accepting that, you know, some things that have happened in the past are f- affecting his jobs now. And, you know, what can you do about it? So, yeah, I think Rick's the one that has a fundamental change in character over the movie, whereas the others... And um, I guess we can go to Cliff next, but then we'll get to Sharon because I think that's one of the most important underrated parts of the movie. But um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but Rick, Rick, I think is the one that really has a fundamental change for the movie, and that leads to him ending up in this position, even if it's somewhat fortuitous. Because we can we can talk about. I mean, going into Cliff now, you know, he's the one that really saves the day at the saves the day at the house at the end. But then the you know Rick gets the hero's ending with a flamethrower. So yeah. And even, like, even if he does get the hero's ending, it takes the hairdresser played by Emil Hirsch to to recognize him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and know know him from his work. So yeah, actually, well, just finishing on that, um, I I did have that down as a note, and because I haven't looked at my notes since we started the pod, because I just like chatting. Uh, that <laughs> I think shows him uh, to finish off his arc. You know, he realizes that the things he's done before. You know, he he just thinks he's going to be forgotten. But this guy that's living with or living with Sharon Tate, who's this young up and coming, who's married to Roman Polanski, one of the great directors. Um, 
this guy's recognized him. And he said, yeah, I, lo- I, I always joke with Sharon about bounty law if you want to go next door. And then, you know, I love the 14 fists of McClough. Like, re- like as soon as he says, the, yeah. as soon as Rick says, yeah, I torched him with a flamethrower, he goes, oh, the one from 14 fists of McCluskey? And like, <laughs> and, you see, and you see Rick's face go like kind of this light up. And he's just like, yeah. Like, and he's like, he's recognizing that this young kid next door that's living with these great, you know, very famous people is recognizing him and really enthusiastic about it. And he's going, okay. Like these, are like I, I should be proud of that, and then I can almost also move forward. So it's like this really nice ending to the arc that's all done with a little bit of dialogue, just standing at a gate in the middle of the night. Um, and it's really, I was watching. That's one thing that came up when I watched it just the other night. I was really watching that bit and going, "Oh fuck, this is the real nice ending to the scene uh, to his character development throughout the film." Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a yeah. He d- Rick is pathetic throughout much <laughs> much of it, and. Um, it, it was really interesting to me in those scenes where Rick does mess up with, um, why can't I think of his name right now? Are you talking about the Lancer scenes or the... Timothy Oliphant, sorry. Yes, it takes yes. me a sec in quarantine brain. But <laughs> with Timothy Oliphant, like, Leonardo DiCaprio had to, apparently had to mess up those lines because he couldn't, like, play a fledgling actor. Like, because he's so good at acting. Like, <laughs> He couldn't, like, act bad. He couldn't, like... And he still did in, in like, some scenes, but he had to literally flub lines to portray a bad actor. That's how good he is at acting. (laughs) So, (laughs) that's... So, it was a great actor playing a mid-level actor who becomes a great actor. So, that's another story arc right there. (laughs) (laughs) Because, yeah, that was... And it is some of the best acting that uh, I've ever seen. Like the little girl says to him at yeah. the end of it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he goes to do film, like he still goes to do Italian films after that. So that's surprising. Yeah. Well, I think that's him kind of like he, he says that I'm Rick fucking Dalton line and goes, okay. But what Schwarz... That's him accepting his role and yeah, well, what, it, what he, he is as an actor. He also realizes what Schwartz said at the start is that those roles are all you're going to get if you keep getting them because then people will think of you as that. Whereas if you go to go to Rome and make uh, make some movies with Antonio Margheriti, um, you'll... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice Easter egg. <laughs> yeah. Um, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll have a second phase of your career. It may not be the Hollywood career, but, um, you know, history says Spaghetti Westerns is a really uh, big part of big part of movie history and um we wouldn't have we wouldn't have the tarantino we have without them so um it was quite a nice little homage to it and a separate part of movie history that isn't actually hollywood but um was a big part of what made some hollywood actors like you know clint eastwood being one of the big ones who made his spaghetti westerns and became one of the big you know the icons of hollywood so yeah it is uh it is that that homage in that sense and then he accepts his time and then he comes back and he's He's ready to accept living with his wife and, um, you know, cutting down on some of the lavish things he has in his life. And then when he's accepted that, he gets re- invited into Roman fucking Polanski's house. <laughs> so Exactly. Not only Roman Polanski's house, but the guy who killed the bad guys. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he's, is, like, he's at a real hero's moment as well. There was like, on one of these threads, there was a comment that was like, yeah, they like, they killed those people, but. And like this is an interesting way to look at it that I haven't looked at even after a couple of rewatches. It's like, yeah, they killed him, but Manson's still alive and still like influencing those people. And like, s- those people still went on to kill people after 
the Sharon Tate murders, but like if those three got killed, especially the one that <laughs> the real life one that Rick flamethrowered, which he did not do in real life because Rick Dalton's fictional, but <laughs> <laughs> she was apparently the most malicious, like scary person of the group. So maybe that would stop it, but it is scary to think that like Charlie, but the, like the Sharon Tate murder led to them being caught and broken up, mm. even though they killed after it. But in this, that just happened, and now Manson still has followers and still has stuff, so maybe they still come after the Sharon Tate house. Who knows? That's just one way I never thought about it. Yeah, well, I guess it depends if you think that when they find out that the, uh, the three were brutally killed by Hollywood actors to the day, <laughs> they go, uh, maybe we shouldn't go after Hollywood. <laughs> you know, you don't know how that changes, but they were, they were legitimate mental cases in that whole uh, family thing, so... Um, which we'll, we'll, I think on the second half of the pod, we'll talk a bit more about just the kind of a fiction versus reality aspect of that and how, you know, but, um, cause the spawn ranch scene is very real. Yes. Like that could have been like taken from reality. I like if, if Cliff was a real person that could have been taken from reality. Yeah. And I guess we can move on to Cliff now, as far as just talking about that, our characters, their three characters, uh, the spawn ranch scene right from, I mean, well, Let's talk first about the question that you, you posed to me through text as we were, we texted almost as long as uh, for days about this before we actually started podcasting about it. Uh, did Cliff kill his wife? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I do love that it's just like absolutely a play on the Natalie Wood murder, even though Tarantino says it's not, it definitely is. Like, mm, I hadn't even thought of the about murder. That, yeah. Yeah, like the murder of Natalie Wood. Um, I think it was 81. Uh, but Christopher Walken was on that boat. But I definitely, like Tarantino said it wasn't like that, but it was. Because like nobody knows how Natalie Wood died. But it's like pretty clear that, um, I can't think of her husband's name right now. I wanted to say Richard Dalton, but that's obviously just Rick Dalton. But it's <laughs> Richard Dalton. <laughs> um, I, I think he, like I think he did. Um, because of the reason I told you of, uh, and you need to rewatch it to know it is when yeah, he's watching yeah, that, shitty, <laughs> that shitty, that shitty, that shitty fifties movie. Maybe it's a good fifties movie. I don't even know, but he's watching it in a shitty trailer for sure. <laughs> and there's a quote along the lines. The guy says, he's a muni- he's a musician. You know, those guys get hot sometimes. Like who knows what was into him and, re- and, uh, Cliff just goes, yeah, and that's the end of the scene. And right before he starts watching that, they show a pinup of a blonde, and I don't know if that's supposed to be his wife or not. But anyway, it sets the scene for it, and and that's something you maybe wouldn't catch unless you're rewatching it. Because like I went into like looking at Cliff, like does this guy have what it takes to kill his wife? I guess because I knew that was going to be a question that would be posed in this. So what do you? So how do you? see this well i started taking notes as i was um i watched that so that scene you were talking about i was like i still i still don't find like um i guess there is that part of it that he's just like you know he's a temperamental cat and he's probably just going yeah like because probably because he is too um but right but it's about beating a woman <laughs> <I think. laughs> what they're talking about yeah. so like and then so what do you I think what do you that's think is that little thing. that little flashback to the boat um where he's where his wife's bitching at him do you think that's his memory of it do you think that's a flash like a I think it like it's all his memory of it because isn't that flashback during when he's on the roof? 
Yeah. Because he has the yeah. flashback with Bruce Lee too, which yeah. is definitely through his memory. Yes, yeah. So, <laughs> so I think those are both through his memory. Yeah. And um, even in his memory as the gun pointed at her. Yeah. So he's Or the spear fisher thing. Yeah. Um, I was interesting, like the going back to the Bruce Lee scene, I, I was trying to find clues and like a lot of the things I say may just be completely like not even part of what, what is the actual story. But, you know, we're talking about our theories about something that we don't know of, so it is what it is. Um, Nobody knows. Basically, Bruce Lee has that little line where he says, my, my fist registers lethal weapons. Uh, you yeah. Know, if, I, if, I, if, I, if we get into a fight and I accidentally kill you, I'll go to jail. And, he, and it flashes to Cliff, and he just very matter-of-factly says, you know, anyone accidentally kills someone, they go to prison. It's called manslaughter. And I was like thinking, so is that a clue that he accidentally killed his wife and he knows exactly what that means? <laughs> because they got into a... That's t- a good, hey, that's they, a good one that they, I didn't know. They got into, like, she started bitching at him more on the boat. He's got the spear gun in his hand and it just goes off and he killed her. And it's just like, so I, I had that thought in mind because he just straight out says that line and it's the camera pans to him so directly that it's just like, we're focusing on this line right now. And, and it was just funny anyway because of the way... You, Right, um, uh, Brad Pitt expertly delivers the line and um, obviously deserved his Oscar. But I, that's one part of it I thought of that maybe it was an accidental killing, and that's why it was like, oh, he killed his wife. But you know, he did, he got away with it because he they didn't have the evidence to say it was deliberate. So maybe it was accidental. I don't know. Um, which doesn't excuse getting into a fight and killing your wife. Obviously, we're not condoning any of this stuff. <laughs> no, we're not. Just, at we're all. just talking about this from the character standpoint. Um, a fictional movie. Yeah, <laughs> but and you know, and then you look at Cliff as a he's just so cool, calm, and collected all the time. You know, he uses he's very, very good at violence. He's, you know, when he, we'll get to the Spartan Ranch scene, but when he lifts Clem Grogan off the ground with one punch, and you know, you can tell that when he has to use violence, he has a great propensity for it. So he's. He knows how to use his strength and his uh, wills and his and his nows as far as that goes. But then I'm just like, I don't know if he, because he's so calm and collected all the time, I don't know how he would lose his shit and kill his wife. But then maybe he's learned to be that way because of that. So I'm I'm in the I don't know boat. I like to I I I'm kind of want to explore. I'd love to hear if the accidental thing is a bit got a bit more truth to it than just my mind, but. Yeah. The fun thing is, there's no answer to it. Yeah. But uh, there is a theory floating around out there that he made he made up that he he himself made up that he killed his wife so that he had that kind of re- like not a bad like a tough guy reputation mm-hmm. almost like because right before Bruce Lee or like as Bruce Lee's taking off his jacket, um, the yeah. guy says, "Hey, be careful! <laughs> you know this guy killed his wife." So. And, it obviously, and that, and that and like was his mem- and that was his memory of it. So it's just like he's infusing his memory with the exactly. reputation that the story that he's put out there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I can fuck with that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? Yeah, and we'll never know. But it is um, a pressing question at the the central part of this this film when because there is like while well, you said it probably is Rick's story, and I know you said it's all three story. Mm-hmm. But the middle act is definitely all Cliff. Like yeah. it's about Cliff, and it's about his story. Even when it's about him helping Rick, it's still about him. So there is no act dedicated to Sharon herself. Yeah, but well, I think I think her act kind of just spread because I mean the, the and we, the Swan Rush scene it kind of it's there and then it flashes to you know Sharon going into the Bruin and whatnot. So it's kind of there is a bit of bounce back and forth just through their day, and and they're all having very different days. Um, yeah, <laughs> the Spartan Ranch scene, just as a filmmaking scene, is um, beautiful. Uh, it's a western. It's a 
it's a horror movie for a couple of seconds when he's stalking through that ramshackle shack of George Spahn's up there that's got a rat dying on a fucking poison board. And <sighs> Yeah. And, like, that's such a great microcosm of what is happening to Spawn in the back. Yeah. Like he's just laying there, slowly dying, and nobody cares around him. Mm. They're just, you know, like, they don't care. They don't even care enough to kill him. You yeah. Know? So They're just using him. Yeah. So that's yeah. a great little um, microcosm there. I mean, there's a scene straight, like, there's a shot straight from the good, the bad, and the ugly that mm-hmm. they use. And like, yeah. instead of, I think it's a horse in the good, in the bad, and the ugly, it's some like random stray dog, but, and it's like kind of juxtaposed, but it is exactly the same. Yeah. It's and, very much the Sergio Leone, uh, like long shots um, that, that with depth down like a dusty, dusty yeah. street or dusty, dusty plain, whatever it was. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just sets tension. Yeah. And, there's no more tension in this film than that scene. Like, the first time you see it, oh my god! Mm-hmm. And you and I had heard about it on Twitter. Like it was going around Twitter before. I, I think I saw it the opening weekend, and it was still going around Twitter before I could see it as that Spawn Ranch scene. Who knows what's going on? Like, so you don't like. Upon rewatch, you're just like it's so like innocent, but mm-hmm. you know how you know the evil that all of these people that are there are capable of. Maybe not all of them, but some of them, and that's all that matters. Yeah. You obviously see it. And as much as Tarantino gets back at Sadie, who was the most demonic one of all of them in real life, he gets back at Clem just as much. He was also a murderer. And as we talked about off air is still in prison um, for murdering a ranch hand at the actual. No, no, he's that's the one we talked about yesterday. He's out of prison and unknown. Oh, right. right, He's the one that got, he got paroled in like the, the ninth, Excuse me, 1985, and uh, right, Tex is the one that was. Yeah, Tex is still in prison as a born again Christian because what else do you got to do after you've murdered people and go to prison and and find God? Um, Well, we can get how people find God in prison off air because I have plenty (laughs) of thoughts about it. But yeah, um, it is a yeah. But yeah, it was it um, was another little and if you knew the story well enough, then you'd sit there and go, well, that's a little bit more of uh, a lead up to what Tarantino's revenge fantasy aspect of this film is. Um, with that beating the shit out of uh, Clem there and making him change the tire is like you know this guy, and the, and it was just and Cliff playing a stuntman. Um, this guy that Clem killed in real life was a ranch hand and a stuntman as well. So it was like it was a little bit of a, a you know revenge for you know in honor of. Unfortunately, it does nothing to change what's happened, but it was just Tarantino. And, if you, and you know, if you don't know the story and never look it up, then you're not going to know. It's just going to be a, a cool scene because it really exemplifies uh, the violence that Cliff can utilize that he utilizes later in the film. Right. Um, because he he literally almost kills this guy with three punches, I think. Because the, the sound... And he lifts him off the ground with the first one. Yeah. Which is and then just grabs him by the hair <laughs> and is like lays into him. And I, lo- I love how he's just like, he, all the girls are kind of starting to come over and screaming and... And he just looks at him and says, "You take one more step, I'm knocking his teeth out." And they just stop because they know, and they don't even and know. Think, and they don't even know his reputation. They just know this guy is not to be fucked with, and they just leave. They he's just, just literally murdering one yeah. of their friends right now. <laughs> and all they do is put their hands in their heart, and one of them does the little like you know mouth, "I love you," and it's just like, you, yeah, you fucking pussies. <laughs> no, and I think Serentino did that on purpose to show like how like young and naive like a lot yeah. of these girls were. Like they didn't totally know that what they were like subscribing to with joining this thing they just needed something to be around and like 
they were all led by emotion rather than any sort of brain or anything like that. So I think like Tarantino did that for a reason. And I do think that there's a big reason why it's all females too. Like there's no other males there when this is going on except Clem. Yeah. And then they, all female, like, well, the the females even send for the male that's out riding the trails, like taking these guys out. Um, you know, Tex, um, who ends up being, is one of the ones that goes to the house later on. Uh, really well, a really great young cast, by the way. Like Austin Butler was really great as him. Um, yep. yeah, Margaret Qualey is, uh, as Pussycat. Um, we love pussy. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. That's um, in the movie. If you're listening to this and haven't seen the movie, I'm not yeah, trying which, to be. <laughs> which we already told you, stop when we gave you the, gave you the chance and watch the damn movie. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that you know, they even have to send for him because they're not going to deal with it themselves. They want the, they want the guy to come back and do it. Which um, obviously Tarantino's had plenty of movies where he has strong female characters, um, so it's not like he's saying anything there. It's just that these, this is what these these nineteen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty year olds, or maybe under eighteen, uh, with Cliff, Cliff's quest, questioning a pussy cat in the car. <laughs> um, yeah, I ain't going to prison. For Some say now. that's a nod to Polanski. <laughs> yeah. The whole I, thing. Look. But. I could not not think of that whenever I see that scene. Um, I just thought about it the second time when I was watching it. The yeah. first time I was just like, I didn't know how old the girl was, so I was just like, I mean, but but you get those vibes for sure. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely also kind of a nod to Polanski's uh, nefarious past. Mm. But also, yeah, that whole scene is just like, I think it's also Tarantino showing like, yeah, like some of these girls were like super fucked up like especially like squeaky and mm. sadie and you know the people who actually carried out shit but like a lot of them were just young and stupid and they don't know like they were just lost and like they don't know what to do when something's actually happening like yeah. we think of these people as criminal masterminds because they pulled off mass murders but they're just young kids who were under the impression of a lot of shitty lsd and an insane cult leader basically mm-hmm. yeah um Moving, I guess um, that's a good segue into Sharon because we're talking about, um, and you know, with those young girls in particular, it was the it was the hippie culture, and um, I mean, you know, the big lead up to uh, Margaret Qualey, uh, Pussycat being picked up, was a couple of times where you know Cliff <laughs> sees her and she he's going the other way, and it's like oh no, and then finally she's going the right way, and uh, well, they're both going the same direction. Um, by the way, I love when Cliff kind of pulls over and he's like, yeah, I'll give you a ride, and he's kind of excited for it, you know, young young pretty hippie whatever and you know he's kind of just bouncing between the cultures he's kind of just cliff um between hanging out with rick who hates him to picking one up <laughs> in cliff's car uh, uh rick's car on the way uh, oh rick know. hates hippies i was yeah, like rick, rick does not hate cliff yeah sorry yeah i meant rick rick hates hippies but then cliff is driving around rick's car like you know technically on 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 the job in between things he's doing for him and he's you know giving a hippie a ride i love as soon as as soon as she said, you know, he, she says, I'm going to Chatsworth. And then, and then he's, and she's like, yeah, we live up, you know, people love me about their, their vacation. They tell stories about taking the hippie girl to the movie ranch. And you see Cliff's eyes change there. He's like, Span Movie Ranch. And he, and he immediately goes into protective mode. And he's like, all right, I'll take you there. Cause his whole plan is to go there and see what the fuck is going on. Cause he knows George Spahn and he knows back, yeah. back in the day, he wouldn't be letting all these hippies hang out there. So, it's um yeah it's a really good little bit of uh, it's one thing that you know I picked up more on rewatch rewatches is just how you know there's little uh, that great acting that's happening throughout this film obviously with a couple of Oscar nominations and a win uh, from the two fellows that are in the movie uh you know there was just those little moments that you notice on rewatches and that's why I encourage anyone who's seen it once and listening to this go and watch it again to pick up on those little moments because you just see those little changes in character and 
and it and it really feeds to just it, the um overall appreciation of how well constructed this film was um with just that whole scene that that could have been a movie in itself you know a short film maybe but um that whole spine ranch section um going to find out what's going on there and finding out and then you know he, <laughs> do you believe he's okay now well, not exactly <laughs> like he, know, he knows <laughs> he knows there's still something weird going on there and obviously and you know and that leads to the end of the movie where he's like i've seen you guys before and he knows what and then he, it, it kind of all comes together before him but yeah yeah just an amazing scene and definitely um i think probably the best of the film um i mean it's obviously the longest and yeah. the most tension filled even though the last scene it's just like the last scene is broken up into so many different parts that Obviously, it's great on its own, but it is um, just there's a lot going on there. Whereas the Spawn Ranch is you're just completely focused on is this guy going to get out of here alive? Mm-hmm. Whereas in that in basically the peak of the movie, which is right at the end, is you know like there's a lot going on. It's like <laughs> what's Rick, like how's Rick going to be viewed at the end of this? You know what's going to happen with Clint? Is it Sharon Tate who's going to come over and kill these? Like, there's a lot going on there. Whereas you're just focused on at the Spawn Ranch is Cliff getting out of here alive? Yeah, which thankfully he does. Um, even that scene where they they go and get Tex and um, that beautifully shot scene of him riding down the riding down the canyons there on on his horse. So that was just a great great little moment in itself. Um, just great filmmaking and and they make him look very much like a western star riding down to the rescue with the music even though he's a terrible piece of shit yeah but <laughs> um but yeah they definitely do and like especially the first time you watch it when that scene's going on and he's like he gets in the house talks to spawn gets out and now he's walking back he's got all the jeers going on already <laughs> i know i snapchat that to you um one of my favorite scenes of the movie when he's walking back and they're all just yelling at him he's just like bye and (laughs) but then like so you're like yes he's gonna get out of this but then he gets back to his car and there's that knife in the tire and you're just like uh like i remember my like stomach dropping because like do you think is this when it's gonna happen that he's uh cliff is killed right yeah but then of course the fucking clem dipshit totally (laughs) fucks it up because he (laughs) is just (laughs) sitting there laughing yeah he's just like the most fuck you yeah, yeah. <laughs> reminds me of my friend Chaz. <laughs> oh, you go almost too much, <laughs> like, that character. So I almost felt bad for him getting wailed on, but like, because I do like think that's funny. I do <laughs> think it's funny that like this Hollywood guy in like a a huge yellow Cadillac rolls up and he just like stabs his tire. He's like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> that's funny, and he's like, "Well, you're gonna pay the price for that," but it's funny nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, like I said, um, this movie is about three characters, and one of the ones that um, there was a little bit of, I can, I guess we can start this with. There was some controversy as when the film, and it's not major, but um, just more people are questioning Tarantino over his use of Margot Robbie in the film because she was obviously a major part of the marketing, and she's a major part of the film. Um, some lesser lesser critics, I guess I would say, just jumped on the fact that she didn't have many lines of dialogue, and. Um, Tarantino uh, said a line that basically sums up my my thoughts on it after, especially after a few weeks rewatches, which is he rejects their hypothesis. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, it's his movie. Yeah, and he basically and he says there's another quote attributed to Tarantino that he says, you know, I I was telling her story through more than just dialogue. It was 
her actions and how she how she acted throughout the day. And on rewatches, you appreciate that more and more and more of how good Margot Robbie's performance was. Um, yeah, her facial expressions, her smiles, her little looks, her 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 body her body language, the way she bounces around just in a happy way. Um, really, and you know, her dancing at the Playboy party, and even just in the house, um, she, she has a lot of camera time, and she's just doing a good job of acting. Like we know she, we know the damn, damn woman can can act. She's been in some big movies, and we know Tarantino can make roles that are centered around women because he's had two of the major strong female characters in film history, and you know, J- you know Jackie Brown, and then and obviously the Kill Bill um, saga. Uh, so it, it always seemed like an odd one, even though you know Tarantino's got trunk controversy about you know obviously feet. Um, which has just become an in joke now, I think, and I think he deliberately leaned on that a little bit in this movie. But um, oh, for sure. Yeah. And also, it's twenty twenty, and you can't kink shame anymore. So it's like, <laughs> what? So who gives a shit about the feet? Like, yeah, that's a big thing in modern culture. No mm. kink shaming. Like, what you're into is what you're into. Dudes into feet. Don't get it myself, but hey, you know, if you're <laughs> into it, like, whatever. Yeah, let it roll. But when it comes to that, I think the way that Sharon is portrayed in this film is powerful. And I think mm-hmm. she is like, I, you know, I read so much yesterday about this cause I just went on like down the rabbit hole about everything, the controversy and everything. And it's just like, he filmed her in this heavenly way. Like she's like almost in heaven. Like who knows what Tarantino believes in, in the afterlife or whatever, but it like, it was almost like her, like in this heavenly, this like, her the gates to her house look like the garden of the gates of the garden of eden mm. honestly like with like how lush it is and how pretty it is up there and she's just glowing throughout the movie she has so much power in this movie and doesn't even need to talk that's the point of it is she's like the world can't slow this person down she doesn't need to like have like have a person she's so much different than rick dalton like she's on the rise like she's like a glowing star yeah. going cutting through this like it's undeniable. So to say she doesn't have enough lines, I think lines would have taken away from her character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and like I'm sure I'm sure Tarantino, being the king of dialogue, would have written if he was writing lines for her, they would have been amazing. But like the way he wanted to tell her story was just living a life in her day. And I think it's no coincidence that Cliff uh, Rick needs Cliff to drive him around while Sharon gets gets into a car and goes goes on errands, picks up picks up. Um, that's an um, underrated part of it too. She picks up a hitchhiker, but it's the opposite of Cliff's what, Cliff picks up. Yeah, he picks up. She picks up just one that's a genuine hitchhiker, you know, living that free love '60s thing. And Sharon herself is a, is kind of her, she has that attitude too. She's obviously just on the other side of it as far as her finances go and and her job and whatnot. But she's a, very much a free love spir- spirited person, enjoying the good parts of the late '60s um, as far as like your your ability to express yourselves and whatnot. And you know, she picks up a hitchhiker, and they have a great chat. There's, a, you know, great music playing, and then she drops her off, gives her a real genuine hug. You know, says good luck with the rest of your journey, and then she goes off and ha- has her day. And it's just like all these little parts are telling us about Sharon and who she was as a person. And um, it's and you know, Tarantino sent sent the script to Sharon's sister, and she and because she was a, opposing of it at first, and she then mm. she approved of it because she saw the script, said no, this isn't going to be what you think it is. Um, he's done he's he she went to the set and everything and she really approved of the film and the portrayal of sharon because what they what what tarantino expertly does in this movie is make sharon into a living character that at the end of the movie you you have your own wonderful fairy tale mind of what what could have been with her rather than actually thinking about the murders at all um which is you know hard to do with such one of the most high profile cases in history to to 
yeah. draw that out in a film is um, quite quite impressive. Yeah, absolutely, and I do like it is an ode to Sharon Tate as much as it is a story about Rick Dalton and everything mm-hmm. like that. It's just yeah. it's an ode to it's a fairy tale about this princess who was on the rise, and who knows what would have happened to her. I mean, she wasn't like the greatest actress of all time, you know, and not to disparage the dead or anything, but like she was like a character actress who was just, you know, really pretty married to a famous actor who knows what would have happened to her. Yeah, but she, I mean, she was young. She might have, you know, you know, in that moment, she yeah. was the it girl. Why, like, why do I want to like, and the it girl is not going to tear apart society. She's taking like, or she's not taking, she's being rewarded with everything through her own talent. Like, mm-hmm. why would she like, sit there and have this great monologue about life. She's enjoying life. She's going around. She's seeing her movie. She's getting a book for her husband. Who's also on the rise. She's on cloud nine. Like, like, and she does, she just seems like she floats through the entire movie. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, especially upon rewatch, like knowing that she's going to live in the end. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's a young person enjoying being famous. Mm Mm-hmm. And or on the cusp of fame, I guess. Yeah, because she has that scene where, um, which is uh, ripped straight from Tarantino's own life, uh, where she goes and says, you know, what if I'm in the movie? Because he did that when he went to see True Romance at the Bruin as well. Um, <laughs> you know, he said, you know, he said, oh, he said he started telling him that he wrote the film and got in there. So you know, and she did the same thing. So, and just her, and that's like one of her major probably parts of dialogue in the film is when she's having the chat with them, and that's her like facial expressions and her smiles and like kind of the way she she's not exactly sure of herself in asking the question but she's at the same time she's got that confidence to ask the question it's like really like some if a different person in that role could have made it seem a bit conceited if that makes sense whereas she does it so perfectly with her you know expression just her expressions and the way she talks and acts the role that she makes it seem genuine that Sharon was like, I'm, I'm not trying to be conceited. I'm just asking like, this is the first, this is my first experience with this. And again, I think it's important that we note that she drove there herself. Like, cause you know, um, you know, Cliff was, uh, Rick was relying on Cliff to drive him around. Sharon drove there herself and went to a movie on her own, which, you know, yeah, it's still people. Some people don't like going to movies on their own cause they think it's weird. I do it all the time. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, with not Andrea. anymore though. Yeah, but. well, no, with Andrea, with Andrea not here, I am going. Uh, well, yeah, and and with the fact that I literally—that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, literally can't go to the movies at the moment. But um, before that, I'd you know I'd gone to see eight or nine this year already, like just on my own, and I think it's yeah. it's a great thing to do, and it kind of you know it's really it's really a way of uh, give, treating yourself. And she was doing that and having a day out, and and I love her in the cinema when she's watching she's watching the movie and she's kind of like just smiling at herself and her achievements. And then she hears the laughs and she kind of looks over her shoulder with a smile and looks back at the uh, around the other shoulder and she kind of just, you know, rests her ha- head in her hand just with a, a smile of complete just I am loving my life at the moment and it's not like a, a like, oh, life is so great for me. Like I'm so, I'm so like important. It's just she's appreciating her luck in life more than anything and, and in, in a, the truly most innocent way, she's just appreciating that moment in her life. And that's... and. It's a credit to Margot Robbie's performance that she did so much with so little lines to say. And it's also a credit to Tarantino and how he wrote it and probably directed it that he was able to, as a director that's so, a lot of people say, you know, relies on dialogue too much. Um, and, you know, the critics will say that, he, you know, it, it's just they're just talkies or whatever. Um, he really just, you know, obviously shot the movie incredibly well, but just directed her really well in those scenes to get that powerful performance from it. And, make that as an important part of the movie as anything because 
the through line of the movie is these three characters, but her role in the movie was just showing this fer- this time in Hollywood and what it could be. Um, the positive side of the positive side of the city that Tarantino loves for all its all its flaws and its dark dark places and dark alleys. It also has these wonderful warm places of beaches and palm trees and and the inside of a cinema. Um, watching a film is one of the great great experiences in life for film lovers, and that's what he showed. And Margot Robbie just had a great performance there that has been underappreciated by some who want to criticize for uh, for a very uh, very ba- like you know very artificial uh, or you know outside things that they're not they don't actually looking deep enough inside the role and the and the performance to see what was truly there people are just looking to be outraged about anything and tarantino has a checkered past in some ways so you know any any hole they could poke poke in that but i i just think it really plays into showing how where sharon tate was in her life in real life like Mm -hmm. she was just this i I can't really describe it, which is terrible for a podcast, but it just shows her like per- like Sharon T doesn't have a care in the world at that time. Mm-hmm. Like she's not thinking of like, you know, any problems at all. She's living the life. She's a, an LA star. She's on the cusp of becoming an LA star, which is like the best spot you could ever want to be. If you're an actress like that, you're married to a very famous person. It's like, or another famous person who's about to be even more famous. It's just, this like why would she be talking all the time she'd just be taking it in she'd be partying at the playboy mansion she'd be buying her husband a rare book you know that's she would be going to see the very sweet side of her as well she's think she's not always thinking like she's i think that is another aspect of her character it shows that before she goes to see the movie like her day i think was to go down and get that book and then she saw the movie while she was down there so her her first object of the day was to go down and pick up this book that she had read and thought her husband would really love and he ended up um, in real life ended up making the movie i believe um I on a different book that she bought him but oh, yeah. okay yeah like, sorry yeah i meant like he he made a movie based on a book um that she bought him um yeah yeah and so, it just shows an innocence yeah. to her yeah and that and the whole movie is about her innocence and it's reminding us of the fact that like this innocent young girl who did nothing wrong to anybody it was murdered for no reason. And mm-hmm. I really feel like Tarantino really dug in on that to show just how innocent she was. Yeah. And the hippie hippie scene in the, uh, when she picks the hippie up is a big sign of that. Her going to the bookstore is a big sign of that. Her every single scene, like even at the end when she meets Rick Dalton, mm-hmm. like, yeah, she's like, she had a terrible day. It was the hottest day in LA. And she was like, you know, as, as the Kurt Russell greatly narrated when they're sitting at the restaurant, you know, she's uh, overcome by, you know, the melan- pregnancy melancholy and... and, and pregnancy and, melancholy. Yeah, all that stuff that she's gone through, um, you know, hottest day in LA, apparently. And and she's still at, like, what, at that point, maybe 1, 2 a.m., like, is like, oh, come up for a drink, Rick. And she's not even able to enjoy the drinks herself. She's just saying, come up and and, and be part of my, my life and not in the sense of being part of my life. But let's make our lives become together and like and experience, right, right. experience each other as people um which is just um yeah just incredible and that's why that's why this l- length of the movie that some people criticize is so important because we get to know these people so well through some. it flies by though it, it, it does i've yeah i've watched it twice in the last two days and so that's like almost five hours of my life over five hours of my life i think the honestly the scene that drags is the spawn ranch but it's drags in the good way yeah, it does exactly like that flies by too. In the sense, like it's a long scene, and um, and, and knowing what happens helps. But yes. yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, her 
her performance was amazing. I know you you texted the other day, like when we were talking about the movie, as we as we've done for the last few days, as we've been preparing to do this. Um, I'm probably gonna watch it tonight, even though like we're not preparing anymore. <laughs> like just it, talking it, about it, I'm like, be, I it, need to see this. Yeah, um, it'll be watched a lot over the years because I think it's one of it's strangely, you know, I didn't think of it at first when I saw it. I was I really enjoyed it my first watch, but um, I then I was just like, wow, this is. <laughs> as I've watched it more and more, I'm like, this is just so much fun. And it's got immense, immense like ability to be rewatched because it's just, it's just a fun. It's a great background movie if doing something else. If you know the movie well enough, you should watch it intensely. If you don't know it well enough, but um, then once you get to know it, and then you'll pick up on little things as you're as you're watching it going throughout your your daily life. But yeah, it's um, yeah, I think Margaret, you texted me the other day about Margaret Robin just said how beautiful she was in the movie, which I think you you touched on as well as just how Tarantino shot her and they, the makeup and obviously and everything. Um, she my my I was watching it again last night. I was like, she just looks like a, a Bond girl. Like that's how um how they shot her and and that's like obviously I mean that in the most um positive way, you know, Bond girls are That was a big deal, especially back then. Yeah, I mean like, yeah, there's and it still is a big deal these days. I mean there's you know, people talk about um James Bond and the Me Too era, which is a subject for another series of pods, probably. But um just on the basis of Hopefully not. I don't want to talk about no, that. No, I was, no, no. <laughs> Um, but you know, it's still a big deal. Like, you know, it's a big deal when, uh, girls get cast as the Bond girl. Cause they know it's, it's a big role. It's an important role in the lexicon of history, uh, of cinema, whether or not you agree with it or not. Um, and obviously they, they, they're evolving the Bond character as they go, but that's what she kind of has that look at that sixties Bond girl, which was at the time, as you said, just a huge, huge deal. And, and not just that, she just, just, and she's just naturally a beautiful woman. And, um, and she, yeah, Margot just I've, I've been, ever since we saw Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street, which um, her and Leo, her and Leo together was um, a, a sight to behold in that film. But she's uh, she caught the attention straight away with that role, obviously, and she's um, just yeah hitting great heights. And and a movie that didn't require her to say much, she said so so much more with her with her expressions, with her eyes, with a with um, you know a smile and everything. And that's just a testament to her and a testament to, again, how the film was made. And just another angle of how to, how to appreciate the film is just to watch her act because acting isn't just, just dialogue. It is very much how you, every movement of your body and, and everything that you do is, um, you know, it's kind of like um, Leo with his, his little eye twitches and, uh, and his stutters with, uh, with Rick when he's, when he's kind of in a situation where he's a little nervous. It's like those little things are, are what build the character that you don't even know that you, when you're watching, but it's, um, you'll you'll appreciate after you watch it a few more times yeah and rick dalton also just has this weird like southern kind of accent which like leo absolutely didn't have to do there's no like there's no reason that he has to do that unless tarantino told him to and even if tarantino told him to he could have just been like whatever man i'm an actor like i'm a made-up actor who cares what i sound like but he he does this whole like so oh man he's so great i mean not to gush over it too much. We should do films in the future, like where we can critique them. But like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this one, it deserved more praise too than it got from the Academy. I think um, obviously Brad Pitt got the Oscar, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, I just think like, you know, I have no problem with Parasite cleaning up, but one of those, one of the like original screenplay, maybe or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it deserved it a nod in that like not best but well it was my favorite movie of last year including over parasite mm-hmm. but um just one of the big awards i think it deserved yeah i think i've said to you before when we we're talking about the oscars um 
This was a bad year for good movies to be in the Oscars because there was a lot more than uh, some years have. Like last year, it would have cleaned up because um, I think Green Book. Last year was trash. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> so yeah, it I was... didn't even see like and like this, is, but I don't want to see like Green Book, and I don't want to see A Star Is Born, a, a movie that's been made four times now. Like, <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Yeah, well, that's great... I want an original story like by one of the best directors mm-hmm. that has ever. Had. Filmed a movie. Yeah, he's going to be kind of like, um, you know, maybe he's a guy that's got, he's got a best he's got a best screenplay. Um, a couple of them, I think, um, Oscars already. But he he, he almost he's one of those guys that you can say if it like just a quick sports analogy. Every year that you know Jordan was in the league, or the, every year that LeBron was in the league, they're probably like objectively when you're taking everything into account, they're the best. Uh, they're the best player in the league. But others get this. Others get him because it's not. Oh, it's not just. It's not fun to keep giving it to the same guy. So I think that's a Tarantino. Every year he's had a screenplay at the Oscars. It's been. There's an argument. It's for the best one there. Um, I, I I'd have to go through the, the years that he's he's lost to other ones. Which and I'm not saying those other ones weren't equally deserving. But you can say that, you know, he he's easily deserved it. And he's only going to have one or two at the end of his career. Um, uh, without having the numbers in front of me, I think he's got two, but I'm not 100 percent sure. I feel like he got pulled. This pick. one for sure, though, deserved it. Yeah, this like, one. If you're talking like Django or Inglorious, like maybe Inglorious, just because. Christoph I think he. Waltz, I like, feel like he got one for that, and that's why. That's where, and I, I feel like he got it for Pulp Fiction as well. So that's where I, the two that I'm thinking he got are coming from. But yeah, Inglorious was uh, wonderful. <laughs> you know, Django. I can. I, I'd have to look at the other ones of the year. You know, Django was incredible, but not quite as up, up there with Inglorious. And but this one. I said to you in text, and I might have said it at the start of the pod too. I think this movie is, you know, to <laughs> to rip a line from um, from Inglorious Bastards, which at the time I think was a real, uh, you know, next step up in his career. At the end of the movie, when um, you know B.J. Novak is looking down and saying, "I think this might be your masterpiece," straight at the camera. Um, this movie, obviously, this movie, yeah. didn't, this movie, obviously, it wouldn't have fit at the end of this movie. But uh, I think uh, that scene where it just says "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood" as it ends. Was kind of like and the music, yeah, the music as well. At the end of that, all the music it, kills me. All it needed was just BJ, BJ Novak's head popping up again and saying, "I think this this might be your masterpiece." With the evidence emphasis on this, because I think this um, is up there now. Um, when we're talking about Tarantino's uh, film catalog, and he doesn't have any whiffs for me. He has movies that you can. Um, I said to you yesterday, it's like comparing a picture having a two hitter versus a no hitter. He still had some. His movies that aren't quite perfect. They're still some of the best movies when you compare them to the <laughs> the immense catalogue that Hollywood has of trash around and even even great movies. His, his worst is still, still one of the best ones. First train on the new pod. <laughs> Very fun. Yeah. It was, I was waiting for it to come. I was thinking, oh, we're an hour in and we haven't seen one yet. But, yeah, I think this one, in any other year of the Oscars, when you don't have... And it's nothing... Again, it's nothing against Parasite because I'm sure we'll do that movie at some point in this pod because I love that movie. Um, so it's, it's, it's one of those years where you look at, you know, again, a sports analogy. Some years you have three teams that are the best, some of the best teams you've ever seen play play the game. And it just so happens that, you know, one, you can only have one winner. And it was this year at the Oscars was one of those years where you had, um, you know, a film like 1917, which from the production production aspect of it was amazing and, and well-directed and acted too. And obviously had to be written incredibly well to get, kind of understand what you were putting onto the film and then Parasite was obviously a groundbreaking as far as a foreign language film really, really hitting home at the Oscars, which was great to see because um, despite what what a certain 
president would say uh, the, <laughs> the Academy is a worldwide awards. Even if it started in America, it is now it is is long long time being a worldwide awards um, as far as how important it is to everyone in the in the in the film industry, um, no matter where you're from. Um, so. Yeah, Parasite deserved it. And once upon a time, like I said, any other year um, with some of the weaker lineups we've seen in Academy years, this movie wins and cleans up a lot. And it's just it's just unfortunate that he did come up against a powerhouse film that was coming in from... That was breaking ground and, and, and uh, a long time coming, I will say, that about Parasite, and a long time coming that a film like that finally breaks through to the to the tr- the Western market in a big way like it did. Um, but yeah, it's just unfortunate that uh, Tarantino had to have what, probably his one of his best movies, we can talk about that, later down the track because I still think it's it's one of those things that comes with time when you really want to talk about it but yeah one of his best films best written films best shot uh, best directed and uh, and really most affecting um, yeah not not get as much reward as it probably could have but uh, Brad Pitt who's had a great career got his first Oscar for it so um, and yeah and he deserved it upon yeah. rewatch like he's amazing mm-hmm. um, he's almost a, I mean screen time wise him and Leo are really close so, mm-hmm. you know, should Leo have been a supporting actor as well? But you also say that the movie's about Rick Dalton, which I think is not isn't wrong. Mm-hmm. So, because I thought Leo was amazing in it, and again, like I don't know, I think the nuance that he brought to that role was so much. Like I think, I think the Joker is a role that a lot of people could play. I, I, I hey, maybe a, I'm lot wrong. Of, a lot of people have played that role. Not only have they played it, but I think a lot of people can. And most mm-hmm. of them have done it really well. Yeah. Honestly. I don't even... But the, And then that's another thing is that Joaquin's portrayal of the Joker isn't even the best Joker that there ever was, you know? That's the <laughs> that's frustrating part about it. And, yeah. like, now, like, the Joker has won two Academy Awards for Best Actor. It was, be, it, it, was best support, it was best supporting with Heath, to be fair, but it's still, yeah, an acting, an acting Oscar yeah. for the same character, yeah. That's Heath's movie, though. If you, I mean, the only reason you would rewatch that, not that it's a bad film by any means, it's pretty good, but, like, the reason it's good is because of Heath. So yeah. that's Heath's film, supporting actor. I rewatched that movie to see his acting in that film. Exactly. Um, so, like, is that really unreal. a supporting actor? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I've, I bought the Joker when it came out because I, I want to rewatch because I, I think there's some a lot of great things to talk about about that movie. Um, but I I remember there was one day I was I had it on and I halfway through I turned it off because I got distracted with doing some work things and I was just thinking ah, I'll get back to it later which I wouldn't do with the Dark Knight um, Dark Knight sorry. So yeah yeah that's yeah, that's your argument there as far as and yeah not taken away from Joaquin's performance because he did a great job of what he was doing what he was given and made it his own like he really you know. The dance down the steps is obviously something that um, you know you've made you've made a tourist destination out of that scene basically because exactly people, and um, and his uh, his the laugh the tick that they make that laugh and whatever we shouldn't spoil it too much but um, yeah I think Leo again has been like you know he's up for it in a year that there's there was a lot of yeah you know, good performances up there um you know we can argue about whether yeah Adam Driver was great as well like yeah. um. But he, I don't think he deserved the word by any means. I mean, he was getting a lot of run there, like, in the winter time, Like, that maybe he would get it. But I do – I don't know. I think now that they gave Leo one, it's going to be hard for him to get another. Yeah. Because he's been he, – like, he's so great in everything that it just becomes, like, diluted. 
Like, it's like, yeah, of course he's like kind of like the LeBron thing you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Tarantino With writing Tarant- a script. It's like, of course it's going to be good. It's Tarantino. Like, yeah, we need to see it be yeah. exceptional now, which I think I think once upon a time was exceptional. But like I said, it was in a, in a exceptionally strong year as well. So. Again, more impressed by it than his performance in uh, The Revenant. Mm. So I don't know. I, I think his performance in The Departed is should have won it as well. So. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic in the Departed. Um, incredibly, uh, that that came on recently when I was watching. So, and God, he, <laughs> you forget how much he's aged until you see one of his younger roles. Um, That's not even like one of his younger roles. Like, yeah, yeah I get, yeah, uh, like it kind I mean, of like, yeah, it's like mid yeah. middle middle career at that point. But I guess it, he still he was like oh six. Yeah, something so like, that. like it was around when I finished so like high school. You go to like Gangs it, of so. New York. New York is, Gangs of New York is like a one. So it's like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He almost seems older in Gigs in New York, though, because he has the shitty teeth and everything. But uh, <laughs> sure, we'll get to all these movies. The part it might be a good next one. Yeah, but we we could probably stray away from Leo at some point. But <laughs> he is definitely the actor of his generation. He's definitely became like Jack Nicholson, um, you know, Robert Redford yeah, of his right. era. Particularly the fact he's doing so. He's actually putting out a fair few movies as well. Like, there's a lot that he's he's not like. Um, you know, Daniel Day Lewis is fantastic. To another Gangs of New York reference there. He's um, you know, everything he does is is pretty much gold. Like he's just a fantastic actor, but he only does one every like what four or five years. It feels like sometimes. Um, well, he's retired now. Yeah. Apparently. So, um, you know, Leo has and a- Phantom Thread was great, but I hope that's on his last film because like I don't even know. I don't remember if he won for that, but that film's. I mean, it's really good, but it's tough. Mm. <laughs> like I don't like that's a film like. That was a Paul Thomas Anderson, right? Yeah. Like, Paul Thomas Anderson makes a lot of films where I'm like, don't need to know if I, like, should watch that again anytime soon. Like, There Will Be Blood comes up, like, on Netflix for me, recommended all the time, and I'm like, I just got to mentally prepare myself before I jump into that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I got into this talking about um, Brad's Oscar win. Um, this is a guy that's had a fantastic career. Um, I kind of found it funny when I was watching it again just yesterday, uh, watching him, you know, his, his acting when he's, uh, high on the cigarette, which we can talk about that, that scene, I guess in a bit, but, um, all right, if we're going to talk about that, I got to pee. All right. We can make a cut right here. Yeah, we'll take a cut and we'll start getting into some just random, like our favorite scenes and then, um, just some of the more, uh, legacy behind it. I need film. to grab what, more white claws as well. So. <laughs> Really Grab a six pack of white claws. Go order a pizza. I've had to pee since we started Cliff. Uh, so, <laughs> all right, we'll be back. In Nashville, you can hear great country music. In Memphis, you can hear great southern gospel. In the Great Smoky Mountains, you can see beautiful sunsets. But in Chattanooga, you can drink the best beer brewed in Tennessee for the last forty years. Old Chattanooga, still brewed at the Old Chattanooga Brewery, Kingston Pike and Old Chattanooga Road. So bring home a six-pack of Southern hospitality. Bring home a six-pack of Old Chattanooga beer. Old Chattanooga, the best beer this side of Texas. All right, and we're back um, the intermission of the pod because, you know, it's movies. We have intermissions. Um, which is so we're good pretending th- like that's where our ad reads would be if people are going to pay for it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 
uh, future sponsors, please. <laughs> um, White Claw. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of sponsored by White Claw. It's just there's, there's no money for us. Shay's just doing his best. <laughs> Feeling me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, were, we were talking about the, the Oscar win for uh, Brad uh, for the, the Cliff Booth role before we, before we took our intermission. Um, he had a, like, just as a side note, he had a great, circuit towards getting the oscar like he, he cleaned up all the major acting awards which you know usually when you're cleaning them up that much you know it kind of seemed like it was a, a foregone conclusion that he'd win the oscar and and so he did um killed it with the speeches Can i interrupt real just real yeah quick. yeah yeah the fact that and i don't know the actor's name off the top of my head and i know this is a movie podcast i'll do better research this just popped into my head but the fact that the actor portraying elton john and i love that actor but the actor who won the Golden Globe, was it like Taron something? Taron Edgerton, um, Edgerton, yeah. Yeah. Won the Golden Globe over Leo as well, which is very frustrating. That is in retrospect. Yeah, I didn't realize he I didn't realize he won anything. <laughs> also over all the other performances that we that we talked about, including yeah. Joaquin. So all right, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to say that because you were talking about cleaning up at the awards and I'm like, Leo didn't even get the Golden Globe. Yeah. Like, yeah, Golden Globes are kind of like sometimes an oddity in the... Um, they often say it's a good barometer, but then there's been plenty of times where the Golden Globe were hasn't gone on and won the Oscar. So I don't see how that tracks. It's just they're, they're a slightly different award ceremony, which it's equally pretty... You know, Golden Globe's one of the bigger ones, so you, you'll take more it. More fun. Yeah. But it's also not as important... Yeah, when Ricky Gervais, is, when, when you keep bringing Ricky, <laughs> when you keep bringing Ricky Gervais to come back and roast everyone, and this and this year he roasted them so so hard that I think there's memes of Tom Hanks just reacting horrifically, which might have been just the start of his infection. But um, it's uh, there's a conspiracy theory that Tom Hanks didn't have the coronavirus, but it was but it was said that he had it and he agreed to it so that people would take it seriously. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> it's probably it still didn't work well enough until it, until it got bad, but it's uh, still not working. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe in Australia it is. Uh, we're we're they're, they're saying that there's new cases every day, but it's flattened. The the exponential increase is flattening off, which is good. It's they're kind of flattening the curve. Not bit. here. Yeah. <laughs> um, though I did, I went to, I was, I went past my favorite takeout spot the other day because I was thinking I'll go in there if there's no one else in there because I'm like that paranoid about it. And uh, there was there, it was packed in there. I was like, "You fucking idiots!" And I just kept on driving. So um, yeah. Anyway, back to back to Brad Pitt and the <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah. This is I, our, I'm, this I'm, is in the sports podcast. Yeah, where we I'm go a, on tangents. <laughs> kidding. I'm sure this will be even worse. Uh, Brad Pitt, like I I love when someone because I, I follow the award seasons because I'm really like even though you can talk about how people win Oscars because it's you know it's a lot of campaigning and whatnot. Um, I still enjoy the the spectacle of seeing these guys rewarded. Um, Brad, and, and it's always good when you see guys that they they're creating speeches for the different different ones and uh, different awards, and they kind of track through with some humor to everyone and have a really good speech for everyone. Brad Pitt had some great great lines in his acceptance speeches. I think it was at the SAG Awards that he said that uh he said um you know it was a really tough tough role to play a guy that gets high takes his shirt off and doesn't doesn't get on with his wife and it's just. Like, I died when I saw that. <laughs> and Jennifer yeah. Aniston, and Jennifer Aniston's like looking on affectionately laughing, which is quite nice as well. But um, obviously, no Jolie because that's where I think that reference was from more. But um, you know, he was he was really quite he was 
you know, typical Brad Pitt, just quite, you know, he's finally getting recognition because he's, you know, hadn't got an Oscar and he's had not, he'd won an Oscar as a producer for 12 Years a Slave, but never been rewarded for his acting in that sense. So, um, you know, and then it goes much through, different. Yeah. Yeah. Then it goes through to the BAFTAs and, uh, oh no, at the SAG Awards, he also said, you know, I, you know, acted with some incredible actresses, you know, uh, uh, Margot Robbie, Margaret Qualley, Margot Robbie's feet, Margaret Qualley's feet. So he's just making jokes <laughs> about it. <laughs> And then he gets Margot Ro- Margot Robbie to read um, read his speech at the Baptist because he couldn't be there, and I it, the whole thing's really good. You should look it up on YouTube. But he ends it with saying uh, she ends it by reading. Oh, uh, by the way, I'm taking uh, um, I'm naming this Harry because I'm taking it back to the United the United States with me, <laughs> 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 which is obviously a, a a joke about the um, royal family weirdness. Um, and then, <laughs> but then, and then he you know his Oscar speech was actually quite. Um, quite powerful about um, about the people about how lucky they are to do that job and how you know there's you do some good ones you do some bad ones but you know it all you know we're all at the end of the day we're lucky to do what we do and you know they all teach you but and you know the, what's powerful about what he said about the bad ones you do is he says you'd learn something from them still too and he, and it was just like he he started off his circuit of speeches with some yeah. great great humor, and then got to the Oscars and just had this wonderful speech that was you know still funny, but he had a lot of depth to it too. And I was really, it was really cool to see. After all, like you know, he's an actor I've loved in a lot of different movies. Obviously, um, in the Tarantino world, he's had some great roles, and um, even in Tarantino written films and uh, call back to True Romance again, he was <laughs> incredible as the young stoner just sitting on the couch. Um, yeah. I think he plays that role pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> like he said himself in the in the SAG, SAG Award speech. So, um, yeah, it you was, did leave out the best part of his Oscar speech. I was leaving. I was leaving that, that to you. He <laughs> <laughs> he immediately brought up how revisionist history, uh, Tarantino's revisionist history of his late films, and that he maybe needs to do that to. Uh, maybe the current president or something like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> make another film with that. And then it cuts to Tarantino and I don't like who the fuck knows where Tarantino stands politically. I could easily see him being like a crazy Republican, but uh, um, it cuts to Tarantino and he wasn't laughing, but like, I think Tarantino, I you, was laughing. You often see laughing. Tarantino at, when he, when the camera cuts to him, he's often not like, unless it's something that's like out, outrageously funny that he's cracked up at. He's often not. Um, he's the camera comes to him. He's not exactly sure how to act. I've seen it in a few award ceremonies where he's just like he's smiling, but he's not sure. Like I don't think he likes that attempt. He he loves being talking about movies and interviews. Like you see, he's he's when he's being interviewed, he is just full of just you know hand movements. And obviously, we anyone that's a film fan knows how Tarantino talks and acts and his enthusiasm. But I think in those situations, he doesn't. He's you know because he's got the camera on him, but he can't be talking about a movie. And it's just it's. I've seen that a few times, not just that time. He just seems like he's not sure what expression to have on his face, almost. Um, you know. Yeah, I mean, Pitt came out hard against the president, and a lot of people did that night. And that was a nice. That was nice before everything went to shit over here. That we could all gather together and shit on the collective misuse of our government currently. Yeah. Because uh, only a month later would it become such a big deal over here. Yeah. How bad it is. Um, Sorry, I totally derailed this. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was sitting there like, how do I segue back from everything that's happened in the last month back to uh, Brad Pitt had a good speech? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he did have a good speech, but he yeah. let it off with how fucked up it is over here, and that was before all of this shit. Yeah. Well, not before it, but 
it was when we all should have been acting. But, yeah, yeah, but it was when our president was denying um, masks and ventilators from the World Health Organization, which is still plaguing this country. Mm. Not a big deal or anything, but yeah, yeah, no, it was it was when it was still uh, not going to happen, and it would be fifteen to zero in a few days, and all those things. So fifteen yeah. to zero. Yeah, it would be a miracle. It's gone. Um, I'm gonna name my apocalypse band that. <laughs> fifteen to zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, from dusk till dawn, again, Tarantino involved. I'm um, like, you know, when it flips to the flips from um, being regular to the vampires and they're just fucking playing guitars on, like, body parts. Like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah. It's on the episode of Itchy and Scratchy. <laughs> uh, Though that could be a name for you and I. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, so we, we've talked a lot about the movie, and uh, obviously, the movie as a whole, we love every scene we probably love um but you know what was your fate like what was the scene that just if you if you could only watch one scene from the movie um you know before you die talk about it as your last meal the last meal question but for one more one scene of a movie before you before you i like this die of the rona I think it has to be, and I, I might be stealing yours, hopefully not. Um, there are so many to choose from, mm. and I could choose a different one than this if you choose the same, but just the trailer scene. I just, like, especially if I was on my deathbed, like, I need that laugh, like, and I would relate to it, of him yelling at himself for being drunk, and it's relatable. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, him yelling at himself for being drunk and, like, you practice your goddamn lines, and now it doesn't look like you practiced your goddamn lines. <laughs> I mean, that was he did practice his lines. Yeah, we saw it. He was he just did it with a fucking. He was drunk when he was doing it, but <laughs> and he said Spanish, Spanish, Spanish. <laughs> but he did practice them. He yeah. did practice them, and now it looked like he didn't. And I relate to that because it's like I've written pieces, and I've like. I've written papers for grad school where it's like, you couldn't have waited to crack into the beers before you finished your goddamn paper. Now it looks like you don't even care about your goddamn grade. <laughs> yeah. And then I look at myself in the mirror and go, if you don't fix this in the morning, I'm going to blow your goddamn brain. So yes, that would be my favorite scene, and I feel like the most relatable scene. Other than every single scene Rick Dalton is in, I relate to because he's just so just a mess and just <laughs> barely scraping by. <laughs> but he has a good buddy who helps him get it through, and like it just yeah. Yeah, um, I had, I had two in mind because I knew I figured we might pick one or the other, and. Um... So yeah, I, I'd say it's relatable because I I felt like that every time I went out and played cricket this year. I was like, you, <laughs> you went to cricket training and then you get out in the field and you fucking drop a catch and you look like you didn't go to fucking training and you look like you don't know how to play fucking cricket, <laughs> which is probably fucking true. Man, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd have to know a few beers before the night before. So. Um, my, exactly. Look, the we scene, all relate to Rick There Dalton. is a lot of scenes that, like, more subtle ones, but one that just... I I think it's where... I, I love Brad Pitt's eyes and his acting. It's ob the scene at the end, which is an obvious one to pick, but I think it deserves some appreciation because I wanted to talk about it a bit too. Um, the scene, the, obviously, the scene at the end where the, the family, they attack the house and, um, and just that... The shot of him, like, just his eyes where they widen and he's just like... Whoa. 
who, who are you guys? And and then uh, yeah, he's on acid. Yeah, and then he just start, <laughs> and he just starts to, <laughs> that laugh. Yeah, and, he's that, just, that, and, that, and he's that points his little 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 finger guns at at uh, at Tex there, and he's just like, sorry, what's your name? And it's like I'm. Does that you know? I'm the devil, and I'm, I'm here the to, devil, and here I'm here to do, to do the, the devil's work. Which is <laughs> which is like real, but then he just there's that, and it's perfect. It's perfect pacing. It's perfect direction. It's that little like three second pause, and Brad Pitt's just high as fuck. Just goes, no, nah, it was dumber than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just like first of all, second best Brad Pitt laugh in a film. I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> second, just. Him high saving the day still just shows how much violence is built into him. Yeah, the can throw is maybe the hardest I've laughed at, like a, <laughs> a fairly serious film ever in the theater when he just <laughs> like and because it is that Sadie chick who was the worst of all of them, and she and you can't tell me that Tarantino didn't have it in mind to truly torture. That character because she was. I think all, three, I think all three of them actually. He he wanted to show moments of them just getting absolutely fucking brutalized, um, which we can get yeah. to. But continue. But Sadie definitely gets it the worst. Yeah, because she gets the can in the face, which like I was watching this film on my computer um, the other night as research, and I was watching it in, in my bedroom. And her screams after she gets hit in the face with that dog can, which I think is rat brand flavored dog food. There's raccoon. I said raccoon. Like I'm no, the dog food. That's the wolf's tooth one. Yeah, wolf's tooth, but yeah. it's rat flavored. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> it's ra- they have rat flavored, um, and raccoon flavored. I had there's even another one. That. That's fantastic. It might be bird flavored, but. There's four different kinds. The one of them is never shown, but and he licks anyway, that. He licks he, that before <laughs> a couple of minutes beforehand, which would be <laughs> horrifying on acid, like tasting rat flavored dog food. I can't even imagine it. But he he goes, <laughs> he says not bad. <laughs> like, but his wine, like his wind up and throw, and it just absolutely connects, which would be virtually impossible if you're on acid, unless you're Cliff Booth. Yeah, it just. Shatters her face. But anyway, going back to my story, I was watching it in my bedroom in an apartment complex, and I was like, I have to turn this down because it sounds like I'm... <laughs> I was literally like, about to say the same thing. It I sounds had like I'm murdering su- someone. I had there. the fucking surround sound on, and I had all my windows open, and it's like 11 p.m. <laughs> I'm like, the neighbor's... Like, I, I'm in the like little cul-de-sac. The house is big, but there's not yeah. much space. I'm like, nah. Perfect for a cul-de-sac. I, I hope the music starts soon again because I didn't want to turn it down because I... I like watching. I like having the cinema experience. I probably just should have thought to sh- shut all my windows before I watched it. No one Can't came. Do that no one came knocking on. No one came knocking on the door, which was good. But I had yeah. the exact same thought because it's just there's no music or anything. It's just for a couple of seconds there. It's just her fucking insane screaming. And they're very real screams. Yeah. yeah. And then she does it like even more when she wakes up or wakes up. I don't know what to call it, but runs through a glass door <laughs> in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> i'll never it, forget like watching that for the first time and that's what makes a great film yeah and that's how it should be there's so many films that i've forgotten watching the first time yeah i i but can like, tell you like the cinema we were in that we weren't the only ones laughing at because it was so and because you know these people in real life even i i hadn't looked up the story of the man like the exact details of the murders for a long time so i didn't 
over their names or anything, but I knew what was happening was, you know, those people were the ones that actually went to the house and whatever. I wanted I wanted to go in with some vagueness to the details because I wanted to just enjoy the movie in that sense. But Tarantino deliberately, you know, obviously, and I love where, you know, because Cliff is looking all high and stuff, and then just as soon as Tex looks like he's actually going to pull the trigger, he does a little to to Brandy, who's such a great character in a dog as well. And she immediately <laughs> immediately jumps to action like the well-trained pup she is and um and just goes after Tex and she's like fucking ripping his arm apart and then then he's then she goes for the nuts and there's that brutal it, yeah. look at his face where you can see like He the, has a scream too. Yeah, he has that it's scream where you can see like the tendons in his neck like he's like screaming Cause your like, arm hurts because your arm hurt the Jenny. Once you get to the Jennies, yeah, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> he's literally losing like, he's literally losing his manhood and he's probably realizing he's about to die, but he's still screaming in pain. Um and then and Yeah, I, I can't imagine. Yeah. And then and obviously yeah. he, he tosses the can of food at uh, um her face and obviously you, you there's that close up for a second where you see like the fucking gash in her nose and realize it's half hanging off basically. Um and so she's getting brutalized. Then and he he does like the fucking Edward Norton curb stomp from American History X to Tex on the step. Like I didn't actually remember that until I rewatched it. That that's actually how we fucking finished him off. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. And then Well like, and then the chick that who's not Sadie or Tex, like yeah. he just wails on her face until it's just not. And it's and the music's just pounding as he's just fucking slamming her face and you can just see it yeah. near the end her face is just not there anymore. And it's just yeah, and there was. And then he looks at it, yeah, and <laughs> just like, drops her and got her. Yeah, and then obviously he passes out because he's at the, the her knife has um, accidentally ended up in his leg from the tackle. Like obviously she intended to stab him, but that's not like she that wasn't the kill shot. Um, there was some controversy. You know, it wasn't too like I just read some articles. It was like, oh, you know, Tarantino being violent against women again in this movie. I'm like. He's rewriting history now. If it had been all three males that had gone and attacked the house, then that's what he would have done. But it was there was a couple of females in his group. Like, what's he meant to do? And they were also they're also psychotic, fucking tripping, like evil hippie murderers um, that really killed Sharon Tate. Like, what? It was. I read the articles and I was like, you guys do realize what you're doing right now is defending characters that are ba- like defending real people that stabbed some people fifty times. Like as you said in the text yesterday, these people tried to hang Sharon Tate and I think they yes. tried to hang her and Jay Sebring together in real life. Like they tried well, to they tied them up and then they I'm tied them around to, yeah. the net. I don't know. I but, know too much about it because I did go on a deep dive after yeah. I watched this. I, I did a bit um, of reading afterwards as well, just to refresh myself. I'd read it before and then you just, you kind of like, but the way they killed all those people, like one of them um, ran out of the house and they caught up to him and stabbed him like 30 times. And it's just like, these people didn't just, you know, it was like really brutal murders that, you know, make it witchy was like a real line um, that Tex said because they wanted to, so that's why they wrote pig on the door and Sharon Tate's blood like this. I'm sorry to get serious about it for a second, but we've got to remember how evil these people were. And this is, this is the exact reason Tarantino did this ending scene the way it was. He, this movie didn't have much violence in it compared to Tarantino typical movies. It was very much a, a dreamlike film with you know there's a Spahn Ranch scene and then there wasn't really any other violence besides that. Um, yeah, and like him punching that guy isn't that. Yeah, bad. it was and just like, like it was just like a you know an old western fight. It was just a bit more blood, really. And then all the other violence was like Rick Dalton stuff from his career, and like yeah, some well, of it was taken just straight from like. I think that FBI episode like was literally an FBI episode like the actual series FBI was mm-hmm. it was their footage and they put Leonardo DiCaprio in it. So 
That's amazing. I'd love to go back and watch that episode now just to see kind of <laughs> the history. <laughs> like just to, yeah. Um, kind of like they did with the good. Um, no, not the good. Uh, the Great Escape. Yeah. The Great Escape. Yep. So. Um, yeah, so there's a reason that Tarantino does this explosion of violence at the end, which is, you know, he's such an like he's such an artist in the in the in the ways of doing film violence. Like he does it better than anyone. But he'd had a film where he really hadn't used much, and he used it just perfectly to exact this revenge. And I'm sure part of the reason Deborah Tate probably enjoyed the script was that she saw that and was like, "Yeah, fuck those guys." And yeah, who cares? Like, two, who cares that two of them were women? Like we've got to. You've got to, like, look, the violence against women thing in, in the history of the world and the history of the, the subjugation of women is important, but you can't, you've got to separate that from this film where we're talking about characters that brutally killed, um, you know, in one of the most infamous cases in in history, one of the... Killed a woman, yeah, too. That was eight, on mu- purpose. eight months pregnant. She begged to at least be, she begged to be taken prisoner just so she could give birth to a baby, but no, they just decided to stab, stab her a bunch Dead of Dead mother and, as she was being stabbed to death. Yeah, so... Repeatedly. You know, like uh, that that criticism just didn't. I like I I'm very careful about uh, talking about you know because there is certain movies that do you know you look back and go eh, you probably shouldn't have done that. But when you're talking about characters that were um, exactly some of the most brutal murders that have ever been done um, in especially in modern times, uh, you know you just got to accept that this is this is what Tarantino was doing was um, exacting revenge that we never actually got on these guys. Um, and unfo- unfortunately, as far as you know your your screen. Pot- um, depictions of violence against women. Unfortunately, two of those characters were women, but we can't. They were all, they were sadistic, horrible women. Um, just as the man was a sadistic, horrible man, and he he got his comeuppance, and he got probably I think, well, you know, the girl getting her head smashed into the mantle is um as as brutal as a curb stomp. But you know that was that's the one that stuck with me. It was like just a boot through the face is always, um, just visual. The noise it makes is yeah, horrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that scene I think was I think the pacing of the film perfectly led up, led up to that because you 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 lulled into this. It's very dreamlike for a lot of the movie and very just floating along in their days. But then the first time you're watching, especially you know an explosion of violence is coming at some point, and the way it happens is just perfect. And um, on rewatch, it's great when you know what's happening. It's still it's still powerful. Like I'm still just kind of sitting there like half smiling and and yeah in the in the cinema there was people like it wasn't just us there was a few other people in the cinema when me and andrea went and saw it and there were people kind of laughing because they i think they knew, i was dying they they knew literally to, dying they knew these people were horrible people you know like when you've got the girl like sitting in the car going oh yeah i, I i've been expanding on this trip and we should kill the people that taught us how to kill which was actually some uh, something one of the real people said afterwards that they that very was, real yeah so that the, like these that people, person yeah, Sadie said that. So they just, um, they're just fucked up people, and we should just enjoy the movie for what it is, which is a, a fairy tale. That um, yes, it had some uh, depictions of brutal violence against both women and men in that ending scene, but they were based, they were, you know, not based on. They were actually depictions of actual characters that were horrible people. So, yeah, that scene um, is one of my favorites for just that in, the impact of it, um, the fact that we do get that catharsis, and then obviously that leads into the end, which is very. I love that, as I said earlier on the pod about that conversation between Jay Sebring and Rick Dalton at the gate there, where he's just like, you know, Rick's realizing this guy knows his career and is actually a fan. And Rick's like, you know, having this moment of like, you know, ah, my, what I've done already is important, even if I'm not there anymore. And it leads to the, that beautiful ending where the music's playing and, you know, Rick's walking in to have a drink with the, the neighbors that are, you know, still alive and then alternate history would still be alive. So it's really yeah. a cathartic scene and a really powerful ending to a, a great powerful movie 
It it is a powerful movie, surprisingly, with how light it is throughout most most of it. Um, it honestly is a light film for Tarantino, and it crams a lot of. I wouldn't say social commentary, but just kind of. I don't know, a lot of knowledge of history into a moment. And it is a fairy tale at the end of the day. And that's the, I mean, it says it right in the title. And so people who are mad about saying that this isn't actually how it happened, it's like, well, then go watch a documentary about that. There's a million of them out there. They're all mm-hmm. horrifying. Like, we all know what happened. Like, I think I knew about that when I was in, like, middle school because I was watching some, like, I don't know if it was E or... I don't even know what the networks were back then, but with my dad in our apartment and just being like, whoa, this like really happened? Like this, yeah. And like just being like, like I knew that. I've known that story almost all my life. Yeah. And I think that's something most people have, even me, like growing up in country South Australia, I I can't remember when I first heard about it, but I was certainly like a young teen um, when I first heard about it. And it's just because it's that much deep, like deeply intertwined with Hollywood history. Because then we talk about, um, I guess kind of finish off is that like, this movie was uh, about a time in Hollywood where things were fundamentally changing. And a lot of people say that that night in real life, obviously um, is where Hollywood changed because the in, that innocence and wonder about Hollywood changed because you had the outside world coming in and in, infiltrating the home of one of their starlets um, and one of the great directors in Hollywood history, um, his history. Not only that, but the sixties, yeah. they say the sixties <laughs> died that day. Yeah. Um, because the innocence was gone now because there was this other side of the 60s which was very real which is very it's still a thing (laughs) like mm -hmm. it's that underbelly of it it's like we all thought this hippie it was all hippie love and all that stuff and it's like no there's still outcasts in the hippie world who find this all fucked up and it's not wrong that they find it fucked up but it's wrong that they think they need to that they have the power of authority to act on it yeah or just act on it, period. I don't, I don't think they have the power of authority to. Sorry, I think they that just... they, in their own heads, that they think that they are an authority from some, some whether fabric of. Yeah, they're there to be. They're being. there to be the devil and do yeah. the devil's work. It's like, no, you're not. You're a fucking dork from Texas who's taken way too much LSD, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So. It is. Yeah. I. I I think he hit it out of the park on this one. And I would have been obviously really disappointed if he didn't with, and I think that's why he got so many of the people that he got in it. Yeah. Yeah. And he had, yeah, the cast was, yeah, he got, he got who he wanted. I think I read that Leo took a pay cut from based on what his usual base salary is a pay cut for Leo. I think, I think him and Brad both earned 10 million each. So, you know, pay cut for a Leo ain't, ain't a pay cut that we get, but um, yeah. I think Leo gets 20 and he got 15 for this. Okay, uh, depending, yeah, my what I'd read was admittedly not. I don't know. Possibly I, not the get, best I don't understand money, obviously. But either way, you have like a, <laughs> an actor that you know usually has his certain his certain amount that he's he's getting for movies, obviously. And he, and when they take pay cuts to to be in a movie, it means that they're they're genuinely invested in the in the product that they're about to be a part of. So and uh, that's really cool to see. And like especially when these guys have been. Um, particularly Brad Pitt's, you know, had a few roles in um, Tarantino projects, whether they be written or directed by. Um, Same with Leo. Yeah. So it's great to see these guys all being part of this this one movie that um, that was so much different. Like, you know, Brad Pitt's role in Inglourious Bars is obviously very, um, 
out like very in your face like the outer rank character and then same with uh calvin candy for leo and Django. is it whereas these two re- required them to be a lot more subtle um obviously <laughs> rick dalton has his very out there you know um char- <laughs> his character scenes but then a lot of a lot, lot of what actually draws you into the character is the subtle stuff like i said those little ticks that he has and and those little acting yeah yeah those little tearful moments he has where he's just you know having a little a minor breakdown or whatever and and um and same with Margot. Or when well. he's super hungover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about the wet hand. Just like even him talking to like the makeup director or not the, the director when he when he's talking about like getting long hair and a mustache and like hippie stuff. And yeah. it's like you're really having this after he says he hates hippies, it's like him really having to sell his soul, but he had to sell his soul to become like a great actor too, which is another little growth for him. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, quit thinking so much about all this stuff and just go with what the director said and it worked out great for you. Yeah. But that scene where he's hung over, he has his face in <laughs> a bowl of cold water with ice in it and he's he's almost throwing up when the director's talking to him. Yeah, it's just great acting from Leo. Like it's it's an it's an amazing role for Leo and mm-hmm. it should have at least got an award. Yeah. Um yeah, and I think it's it, it was one I wanted to start our podcast with. Um, obviously, this being the first episode, because I feel like we're in a time in um, in Hollywood history, whereas obviously with the coronavirus pandemic that's happening right now, it's shut down, pretty much shut down the industry as far as you know. Cinemas obviously aren't open, um, understandably too. We've got to get on top of this thing, um, but um, the industry is obviously having to go forward. You know, we've had some innovation in it that um, Universal decided to, you know, the Invisible Man had come out and made a hundred million or more already. And then the cinemas got shut down. And, um, I was listening to a podcast that had Lee Winnell on there uh, the other day. Um, and he said, yeah, Jason Blum rang and rang me and said, buddy, buddy, that's what we're going to do. You know, we're going to, we're going to put invisible man out there right now. And like, Lee Winnell was like, <laughs> Lee Winnell was like oh, okay. But you know, it was just like, he was like, this is an opportunity for us to work out what, how, what things that we can do in the future. And obviously I think cinema will survive. Like the experience of going to the movies has changed. Hopefully, already over the years, because it used to be like a real bit, you know, you know, the Tarantino's talked about the roadshow thing with getting a program and stuff like that. Um, but whether you know, well, the Tate scene as well shows it. Yeah, um, so we're gonna see, we're gonna see movies change fundamentally in the next year or two because the industries there's gonna be some some people that'll go, you know, there's some cinema change that we may not see exist after this. Um, you know, whereas there will be, you know, there'll still be cinemas, but the industry's going through a fundamental change right now that. Um, you know, and once upon a time in Hollywood it was about a time in a period of time when the industry and society as a whole was going through a change as well, and that's what we're we're going through now. Unfo- it's been for- forced upon us by an, a- an outside force that, um, but it's just one of those things that we have to roll with, and you know, but movies will always always be there, so uh, we just got to roll with it and see what happens. But it was kind of already going that way too. Yeah, I, I mean, mean yeah, Netflix is making so many movies now. Like, I mean, The Irishman. Uh, it was nominated for a ton of awards. It's a Netflix movie, and so we we were already moving towards that. Yeah, and this is just kind of like a catalyst for what the future was going to be like. Yeah, well, for a major already, studio, like, maybe now. it's going to happen in three years rather than ten. Yeah, so. yeah, because then yeah, you, know, you had Netflix, kind of a bummer. That, but then you had like yeah, Universal throwing the Invisible Man out there on video on demand straight away rather than giving it those few months that usually they get like the cut in the theatrical run. Obviously, due to unprecedented things like not being able to show the cinema, film in cinemas, but um, they still took the option. And they're charging more than what a ticket would be, but that's fine. That's yeah, because if you've got five people in the house for the uh, $20 exactly. meal. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
So, um, you know, they're, they're doing what they, you know, there's some people obviously are taking, looking at it as a chance to just see, see what innovation can, can happen out of this. It's going to, it's going to be a bit of a shaky time for a while as far as, you know, it'll be interesting to see what projects get cut. You know, we saw the writer strike in, in 2007, like saw the end of some TV shows and whatnot. And this is obviously way bigger than the writer strike because it's a complete industry shutdown. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just, a, it's a time that's, everything's changing and, and once upon a time in Hollywood uh, is kind of just is a nice film to just sit back and just enjoy a time that you know it, a time that was, and then a time that kind of wasn't in the fact that it ends in a way that you know unfortunately re- doesn't isn't reflected in reality. But um, it is you know one of the you know great film to just just enjoy and and you know both enjoy the great parts of modern filmmaking and writing and and directing and and obviously special effects and the ending scenes in particular. Um, <laughs> but also, yeah, also enjoy a time that you know he's he's paying homage to a time that was once before that um, a lot of people don't go back to as much with um, older movies and whatnot. But it's it's recommended to just go through film catalogs like that, and you know he really introduces you to both parts of that with this one. So I can't recommend it highly enough. It's um it's a masterpiece. It definitely climbed into his top three for me right away, and yep. Uh, yep. Might climb even higher now that um, you know it's so hard to. I don't know. I remember getting into a debate with you and Jason um, in yeah. Eugene way back in the day about how *Inglorious Bastards* was my favorite, and you guys are going super hard for *Pulp Fiction*. And I agree; like, it's hard to unseat *Pulp Fiction*, but *Inglorious Bastards* was so good. But yeah, this the funny movie... thing, is, funny thing is, that's changed for me since *Inglorious Bastards* jumped like in the last since that time. So it's you know, appreciation changes over the years as well, which is going to be the interesting Absolutely. part. Absolutely. With this one, is that I <laughs> think I think it's going to keep getting better as well. Yeah. Yeah, and Inglorious Bastards is still, I'll never forget the feeling I had walking out of that, the theater for the first time with that one. So it'll always be my favorite, I think. And like, obviously, we wouldn't have gotten that feeling because we're too young to, not that we're young by any means, but we're too young <laughs> to have seen Pulp Fiction in the theater. Yeah, well, I, I, was, I, was six, I was six when that came out. So yeah. <laughs> Same, like, I was five and like, I mean, I remember, like, my dad talking about it with his friends and stuff back then, but I probably didn't see it until I was in my teens, and then when I saw it, it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's still not the same feeling when you're watching it with, a th- like, I watched, I went to Inglorious Bastards on opening night, watch it with a theater full of people. I'm dying laughing as Hitler's getting his face blown off with a machine gun. Uh, and the guy behind me goes, like, not to me, but I don't know who it was to or some of that, but he goes, that's not what really happened. <laughs> like, it, made, it made me laugh even harder, so I'll just never forget that. And then I'll, like, I'll never forget seeing this either, like, with my parents and just dying in the last scene and, like, my mom cracking mm-hmm. up, like, dying laughing at it. So yeah. it's like... Yeah, no, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget, like, this one particularly, because me and Andrea saw it together, and she's... One of our connections as a as a couple was that we first we we've always said we we're movie soulmates because we very quickly as we became friends worked out we had very similar movie tastes and she's a big Tarantino gal as well and um you know she went and like I I obviously we went and saw this on opening night um in Australia and then um which was a couple of weeks after the U S unfortunately um but I remember texted you about it like dude yeah and I was like, <laughs> You're and I was like fuck you I gotta wait two weeks. <laughs> Uh, but you know, I got to it and then, and then like I'm, I work weekends usually when we're not closed down due to pa- pandemics. Um, and you know, I t- I'm, 
you know, I'm texting her during the day and there's a couple of hours that go by and she hasn't texted back. And I'm like, oh, she must be, you know, you know, whatever. And then she texts and she says, oh, sorry, I just went and saw Once Upon a Time again, like three days later. So she, obviously, she, and I was talking a bit to her about um, doing this podcast. She was like that. She just, she wanted to go and see it every day at the cinema, she said, if she could, because she just wanted to live in that world and that, that, that world. And that's just, it is just a movie that, um, that draws you into it in that sense. That world is just, um, and it's, we've tried to explain it over two hours of this podcast and I think we've done a pretty good job, but it's just, it is something about the aesthetic of it and everything that draws you in and just, and just takes you on a ride. And it's, it's wonderful. I can't wait to watch it again. I've watched it twice in the last two days. (laughs) Exactly. Probably going to watch it tonight now. (laughs) I have a feeling that's going to be every movie we do. I'll be like, Oh, I'm going to go ahead and watch that tonight. (laughs) Even though I've already just seen it. Yeah, I'm gonna. I think after this one, I'm gonna start knuckling down and work out what one we're gonna do next and present you some options. But, um, oh yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, that's this has been lots of fun. First first pod for the new one. Um, so I've really enjoyed it. I've been we've been circling this for a while. This um this idea that we'll do a movie pod. So very happy to be doing it. And um, we're gonna keep doing it because the good thing about movies is even when the movie industry shuts down unlike sports we still have um we still have a whole catalog of the history of movies to go through and um yeah really excited to crack into some more but this is certainly going to be no matter when what time in history that we're talking about movies this one i think for both of us is going to be high up on our list of uh, the great movies that we've ever seen and and we'll continue Definitely. to be so and we'll probably if we if we did this in 10 years again we'd probably find a whole other layer of stuff to it because i think that's very excited to do it yeah to visit it in a yeah so um, yeah, until the next episode, um, we'll uh, raise our points to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and uh, uh, one of the great films of all time. And until next time, Shay, we'll have some pints, we'll have some popcorn, and uh, we'll ro- roll some film. You had to drink five goddamn White Claws during the podcast. <laughs> and All right, this cigarette is fucking shit. And by the way, who chose this photo, all right? I have a double chin, all right? Nobody notices that crap.